Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Talk Recorded live. Well, first of all, <clears throat> I would be remiss if I did not start by talking about the Army-Navy game for a couple of reasons. One is it is one of the few games where, at least at the FBS level, where almost every single player knows that that is almost certainly their last football game of their entire lives, and at least, you know, competitive at a high-level tackle football game. <laughs> a lot of these guys will go on to play, you know, some sort of ball, whether they, you know, do semi-pro, where they end up being stationed overseas, whether they do, you know, baseball, I mean, you know, not baseball in the game, but football on the base where they end up. Uh, some of these guys may eventually, after the military committees, or try to make another run at the NFL. Some of these guys may try to get deferred, but the, the odds are long, period, you know, for everybody. It's, <laughs> most people have a, it's a long shot. But for a guy who's going to not be able to devote full time to preparation for playing the game, at least for the next several years, I mean, obviously, we see people beat the odds. We've seen Chad Henning, uh, of course, Mr. Villanueva, Captain, pardon me, Captain Villanueva, uh, who has certainly beaten those odds. And the most famous example, of course, Roger Staubach, who's in the Hall of Fame. But that having been said, for 98-plus percent, (laughs) 90-some-odd percent, uh, well above 95, I mean, there's one or two guys who might attempt to try to play at some point some other place in their lives, but for virtually every player in that game and most of the Army Navy games, they are aware this is their final game. So that's part of what makes it so special. The finality. The knowledge that the qualities that they have acquired Toughness, independence of action, courage, decisiveness, focus on others, self-sacrifice, all those things will be used every day probably of their lives or certainly most of the days of their lives and definitely in their future careers. But most of them, like I said, will never put on pads, walk into a field and play football again. That being said, go Army Beat Navy. Um, finally, for the first time since 2001, uh, those of us who were part of the lean green machine can pop our chest out. The Air Force Academy has a great program, they have a great coach, and I have nothing but respect for them. Navy, let's be completely honest, is one of the better programs in the country, regardless of military affiliation, that they top. 2025 program year in and year out, but it is clear to me there's something special going on at Army this year, and they are very much headed in the proper direction. That is a program 
that I think is going to get better and better. Coach Munkin is clearly the right man for the job. That was a veteran team that played its guts out. There's simply no other way to put it. And I am completely impressed on every level by those players, the way they played. Navy, being Navy, they, despite injuries, despite everything else that made it harder for them, they played incredibly well. Hats off to Zach Aby. Hats off to both programs. Hats off to both coaches. Hats off, period. But that being said, go Army, be Navy. Um, that being said, uh, there can be only one winner, and that winner is Army. And Army was a powerhouse program before I was born, before anyone who ever has listened to, participated in, downloaded, whatever, anything you want to name, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone around who is terribly familiar with football now who could remember the days of Army being a powerhouse program. That was simply before, you know, your day, it was before my day, it was before all of our days. And so now, you know, we find ourselves seeing the Army at least being a bowl-eligible program. I don't think it's going to be the last time. Now, they will have to replace a lot of their top players. They have a terrific linebacker, Mr. King, Cadet King, soon to be Lieutenant King, who will not be easy to replace. There are many players on that team who, because of being part of that team that beat Navy the first time since 2001, will be remembered for many, many years. Uh, Ahmad Bradshaw, certainly a familiar name to the football fans, played incredibly well and looked exactly like the player that those of us who see him play in the past thought he might be. He's a really tough, strong pressure performer, saved his best for last, all those kinds of things. However, whatever team show out there, winner, clutch, uh, tough guy, all of the above. And he's the kind of player that you know, I remember watching D. Dallas, right, at Air Force. I mean, there's some guys you know are great, great college players, and that's them. They're great, great college players. They're not going to play at the next level. Guess what? That's fine. You know, a lot of people thought it somehow diminished what Tim Tebow did as police and that he was not a successful professional. And some people tried to pretend there was some sort of crazy conspiracy to keep Tim Tebow from being successful as a player because of his outspoken faith which would make more sense if there weren't loads of other players who were equally outspoken about their faith who maybe just weren't recognized as much for it. Kurt Warner witnessed regularly to any teammate who was open to it, uh, who ended and began a lot of his interviews, including the run run up to all the Super Bowls in which he played, by giving all credit to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And no one ever said, well, we got to run Kurt Warner out of the league. So, I mean, the vast majority, I mean, I mean, well into the high 90 percentiles of players in the league are men of, of faith of some sort. And, I mean, there's not too many. Chris Cluey, um is one of the few players I can ever think of in the history of the NFL being open about being an atheist. There's very few atheists. There's a sprinkling of Jews and Muslims, and I mean sprinkling. Um, I don't think there's any Hindu 
or Taoist players in the league at the moment. There have been at least one or two Zen Buddhist players in the past. I don't believe there are any at the moment. So it's just a very, very Christian league. So that's why the whole, you know, Thibaut faith thing, whatever. Um, that's one of those just felt like a whatever color herring you want to call that, pink, purple, red, whatever color herring you like to choose. That's what that felt like to me. Uh, he was a guy that didn't make it. Guys don't make it. Guys that I really, really like didn't make it. I Watching characters, the comics, I was reminded how many really good players. I thought Cleveland Berry was a beast. Uh, I thought that Bernard Conley was going to be one of those terrific little water bug third down backs in the league for eight to ten years who, you know, wouldn't be a Hall of Famer, but I thought he'd have a really good career. I mean, Zordich, good God. Like, <laughs> of course, his body sort of broke down on him, but I thought he was going to be a multiple-time All-Pro. I didn't see Steve Walsh as being a great NFL quarterback, but I thought he'd be one of those guys who was sort of on that, you know, Jake Delhomme kind of career track where he'd hang around the league for a good amount of time, started as a backup, eventually work his way into being a starter for a while. You know, he had a pretty ineffectual and relatively short NFL career. So, yes, uh, saying all that to say, a lot of great, great college players do not make it. The numbers are against everyone. That's why when you see the, the real sort of underdog stories, when a guy who does come from, say, the Naval Academy, Air Force, or Army, manages to fulfill his military commitment, then years removed from playing competitive football and, once again, triple option, if we're talking about an offensive guy, every single one of them runs one version of the other in the flex bone. So you're talking about adapting, like the only way to did from being a wide receiver, in essence, in a, though not a wide receiver in the sort of pro-style offense sense, but playing wide receiver in a flex bone offense at 271 or something pounds and six foot eight and a half, uh, managing to, obviously, over time, just sort of filling out somewhat naturally and then bulking up because he knew he wasn't going to have a chance to play wide receiver, obviously, or even or even tight end, most likely. But turns himself to a less tackle, though maybe not a great less tackle, a more than serviceable offensive lineman in the NFL from being a, like I said, a flex bone wide out is pretty remarkable accomplishment. <laughs> Uh, I mean, even without the military commitment part of it, it's a pretty remarkable concept. You toss that in there, it's an extraordinary thing that he pulled off. You know, so hats off to Captain Villanueva for all of his many, 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 many successes in his life. You know, a man who served in the first of the 75th, which I guess I can say is probably the second best of the... uh, Uh, battalions in the uh, 75th Airborne Regiment. But now we are in bowl season, or in essence, uh, all-star game and bowl season. The next football we see will either be a bowl game, playoff game, or a um, yeah, bowl or all-star game. That's it. There are no more regular season games left, obviously. It went by so fast. I mean, from the last week of August to now, seems like an eye blink. Amazing how fast it all happened. I, wow, wow, just amazing. 
And people like to make fun of, including me. My father used to sometimes make fun of them. I mean, you know, the number of bowls, you know, how many different bowls there were and, you know, some of the names and all that. Of course, when I was a kid, there weren't quite as many bowls and there weren't, you know, the the, the sponsorship tie-ins. You didn't have the, you know, Palan Weezer Bowl, you know, one of the, you know, fish and chips or whatever it is, you know, all the various uh, GoDaddies and uh, Gildans and whatever's attached to the bowl. It was just, you know, the orange, the cotton, uh, you know, the rose, sugar. Uh, you had citrus, orange, obviously. Uh, even in the old, 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 old days, you had uh, the gator, the liberty, um, was it the blue bonnet, uh, the Yesta. There was a Japan bowl at one point, which has come and gone a couple of times. I, I feel like I feel like it died, got revived, it uh, yeah, then died again. They still <laughs> have the rice bowl, but that. They still have the rice bowl, but that's the actual professional Japanese leagues, you know, Super Bowl sort of your championship game. So that's, yes. not, that's not really like a bowl bowl game, you know. Right, right, right. But there's been a Japan bowl, and I've seen it um, back when it was around as a college bowl. In fact, I think Rutgers, at one point, Rutgers had been out of the bowls for a long, long time. And then I think the first bowl they named, this is years ago when they were good for like two years and they were back to being terrible again. I can't remember who the coach even was in those days, but this is even Preciano. Um, believe it or not, Rutgers had a slight run of success even Preciano before they were back to being terrible. And I think they went 7-4. and four. This is before they added the 12th game and ended up in the Japan Bowl against, you know, some SEC school on a down year who's still just not the daylight's having this memory serves. Uh, yeah, the Japan funny. Bowl. There's the there's also the Bacardi Bowl, which <laughs> what could go wrong <laughs> was in Havana, Cuba. Right. Uh, of course, it ended after 1946 for you know stuff. Yeah, uh, for reasons. We also have the International Bowl, which is played in Toronto. Uh, which which 2007 2010. I don't know why that ended. Always, it actually sounds kind of yeah, cool. I've always wondered why like the NAIA or Division Three national champion didn't play, uh, or maybe the runner-up or somebody, somebody, some pretty good smaller school team didn't go up there and play the, uh, you know, the champion of uh, the Canadian. Uh, now, no offense to Canadian college football. Uh, they would not want any parts of even like a Sun Belt team. I'm not trying to be mean. It's just a fact. They, they don't have a lot of depth of talent. Literally, you'll find four or five guys in the whole country who are legitimate. I mean, once again, I wish, uh, what's his name? Uh, Donovan over here. But, like, guys that we would consider three stars would be looked upon as gods, basically, in Canadian high school. Sure. So, I mean, I kind of get that at the same time. I don't know, man. I just have, like, a feeling that some of that's just because of inexperience. Yeah. You know, like, they don't, it's not like a huge. Nope, it's not as football big a football third, there. It's a third-tier sport. It is a third-tier sport. I mean, I'm just saying, like, if football was in New Zealand, or not New Zealand, but um, uh, what's that one place? Uh, well, actually, shoot, in New Zealand, if it was, like, in... Uh, Dude, if football were in Haiti, 
You know what I mean? Exactly. The Haitians are in the league, or Haitian Americans are in the league. They, they now. really like Samoans. They really like Samoans <laughs> in terms of like per capita football players, eh? Man, if somebody were to start an American football academy, like they do with baseball academies in the Dominican, you would see Haitian kids coming here by the dozens being recruited by Miami, Alabama, USC, name a place. You know, they would, because I don't know what it is about the genetics, whatever it is, but you walk down the streets of Port-au-Prince and you see dudes who barely are eating, who are ripped to shreds. Like, my God, if you were exactly, eating regularly, man. what would you look like? Exactly. I mean, I'm just saying that because of Canada, because, like, I mean, they got mountain in Canada, man. You know, they got people that have been farming in the cold and the wet, you know, like, you know, that's football weather, man. So, um, I mean, the athletes are out there, it's just, you know, inexperienced, you know, not right. being a huge oh, I agree. football culture. Oh, I agree. That, when I said the talent, I don't mean like the genetics or whatever, like they don't have the ability to produce football players. But sure, the recruiting why nobody, you know, I mean, recruiting wise, yeah. But th- then again, I'm putting high school recruiting on notice anyways, you know, in the next couple months or years. But yeah, I think, but I do agree that, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of guys that know exactly what, you know, there's, or maybe not, they know what they're doing. Well, here's a, here's a good way to put it. Exposed to things. Here's a good way to put it. We have hundreds of sites devoted to high school football recruiting, right? The recruiting process. Yep. And mm-hmm. who might be going there? Canada has like two. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's it's a completely different world. <laughs> right, 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 right. And, yeah. And they don't get a lot of hits. Yeah, they don't. They don't get a lot of hits. <laughs> well, sure, because you know why would a, a nice a nice old Canada boy go to America? You know, have to deal with all that stuff. Why don't they just stay in the great state of Canada? So. You know, like there's, you know, because I mean, obviously, you cool. know, going to another country and playing, you know, sports that, you know, it's not as popular is kind of like, you know, right. I mean, I could kind of see that side of things, you know. Yeah, I mean, the way that we look at hockey here, maybe even a little bit, I mean, college hockey is probably way to put it. The way we look at college hockey here is a bit how college football is viewed there. They, they have good competition, there's a few good programs. But there are entire parts of Canada where it's just not discussed on a regular basis. You know, it's page four or five kind of stuff in the sports pages. You know, it's, you, don't, it, you don't lead with college, Canadian college football, in, unless it's the national championship. And even then, it's not, like, above the fold. I mean, USA Today and the New York Times and whatever have a whole special insert like the college football championships. Like it's separate. It's another little sub paper, you know, while in Canada, it might not be the headline on the days that they actually have their college championship. That's how different the cultures are in terms of that. But yes, there's talent there. And once again, Haitian. Canada has Haitians. Um, So if you've ever been to Montreal, you know that already. So yes, um, not to say it's the only place they can get talent from. They have, you know, as you said, you know, the there's a they have talent all over the or potential talent all over. I mean, look at the six five, two hundred thirty some odd pound dudes who end up in hockey. A lot of those guys are really great athletes. First of all, you exactly. see a guy that size skate the way some of them do. 
<laughs> and you it hits you pretty quickly. That's what the athletic guy. Yeah, the place I was thinking. Yeah, the place I was thinking of before was uh, was Iceland. Yeah, they would be on the offensive line like, well, this is if only Iceland was really close to American football. That's my point. But but the thing is, is because, you know, they have a big, I mean, they have a big culture, you know, the strongman competition, stuff like that, where they just yes. have these huge, giant guys, dudes, you know, but that just they are the descendants of Vikings. Is what they are. Yes, exactly. what you're describing. But, they are the descendants of the Vikings. <laughs> but but I felt kind of bad because like it, only the sense of like a lot of these guys, it's like a hobby. Like you know, they have their they have a job, and oh. they do this stuff on the side. So you have like yeah, he's a much engineer by day, and then he you know lifts weights, and then oh let's play some American style football on the weekend. Exactly, and- man. <laughs> I was just thinking, yeah. like, yeah, these are, like, you know, like, oh, oh, the state of the offensive linemen in the NFL. I'm like, dude, like, there's all these guys that are just sitting there just, you know, like, you know, working at a supermarket, you know, or something, you know what I mean, or working as a lifeguard at a pool. Like, sign these guys up, man. <laughs> like, just do something, you know, trying to get some of these guys, you know. Here's what I was saying. If somebody handed me, say, an NAIA program that had been down in the dumps for years or a Division II program that had been down in the dumps for years. And, you know, we have precious little resources. We have a few scholarships, right? And we're getting our brains beaten in our conference and recruiting. I would do what uh, some of those schools did with, like, Christian Nicoya, like, this is the Pacific. It would send guys out to find guys who were track athletes, discus throwers, shot putters, as you said, strong men, um, uh, you know, hey, you're a decent hurdler, but you're not Olympic class, but you're six one and a half and you're hundred and eighty three pounds, you've never lifted a weight like a football player at least in your life. Huh. You know, I could do something with this, right? I <laughs> mean you you know, you hey, you're a decent enough uh you know, what do they call the break brakeman brakeman on a I don't know if you've seen a bobsled team, but essentially you have a driver who's usually like a you know, undersized slot receiver type. Um and then the book called the Brakeman, and of course, even a couple of former football players like uh, Willie Galt and I think even Herschel Walker have qualified uh, for international competition as Brakeman. The Brakeman is the pusher, basically, uh, the guy who pushes and then hops in and is responsible for breaking. It doesn't. It takes skill too. Don't get me wrong, but it's considered a lower level of skill than the driver on a on a two man bobsled or two person bobsled. So you'll see sometimes former professional athletes uh, who just or you know, junkies for competition will just offer their services basically. Hey, can you teach me how to do this? In exchange, you get, I mean, no offense to the kid that was your breakthrough before, but, you know, I ran 4'4 four, four at 200 whatever pounds. You know, I don't think the guy you had could do that. So you'll see that sometimes, former football players, former track guys, when they lose, you know, a little bit or they, like I said, just too old to do their, their main sport, their body just can't take the pounding. And they just start, like I said, just, junkies or competition, they'll end up doing that. I think at least one former pro football player has actually made an Olympics. It might have been called. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. But actually made an Olympic team as a uh, as a breakman on a two-man bobsled team. And I think at least one former – There, I can't remember the name now, but there was a former – she might have been 200-meter runner. But there was a former um, – there's a woman who's, I think, still the only woman – I think she might be a medals into uh, both the winter. Like, there's only a short number, of, a short list of people who've medaled in both the winter and summer Olympics. And there's a woman 
who, after her sprinting career ended, became a good enough break person on a two-woman bobsled team that she actually might have been a bronze or a silver, probably in the late 1990s or early 2000s. I wish I remember her name. But uh, but the point is that, yes, I agree, there's potential everywhere. I mean, look, China has 2.24 billion people. Even if one one one-hundredth of one percent of them could play college football, that's a lot of talent. When you multiply one-tenth of one percent, you're going to find people. You're going to find them. It's that big of a country. So, like, it's it's, forever big. (laughs) Exactly. That's my point. So, like, I I don't know. I just, I I mean, you know, the NFL has been kind of trying to dip in international stuff, but they're kind of doing it way too quickly also. They're not doing the way baseball does it or the way basketball does it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But. You know, I mean, it's just something where it's like, again, I was just saying, like, you got all these guys just standing around, and you're like, you know, you have a guy who's basically trained to be a football player, and he's just like, oh, this is just a hobby, you know, and they're like, they just are there, and you're just like, oh, man, you know, we can't find any talent. I don't know why. And it's like, well, all this stuff over here is just a matter of, you know, getting a plan together, you know, something, something to get, you know, those people from there to over here. And get right. Well, somewhere. Somewhere out there, there is the football equivalent of Christoph Porzingis and Dirk Nowitzki and Ricky Rubio. Those, I mean, those guys do exist, and they may not be in Europe. You know, <laughs> I mean, one or two of them might be, but they might be in, you know, I mean, good Lord, one of the many, many nations of Africa. You know, that guy might be in Burundi. That guy might be in uh, Ghana, right? I mean, Ghana's already managed to put a couple of dudes in the NFL despite oh, yeah. the lack of really any American football going on in Ghana. Guys that guy probably here playing. exists, but, but, the, but the real question is how many of those guys are there? How many resources do those guys get? Only in the sense of, like, to me, the, and my biggest issue with the NFL right now is they tend to treat stuff as, like, everything is going so right right now, why do we need to pay more money to <laughs> do certain things? You know, like, right. Rick, it's so much money right now, like, why do we have to do that anymore? You know, like that just seems like a waste of money. Well, Oceania Manure was actually born in London, if I says it correctly, to Ghanaian parents, and then at 14 or something came to the U.S. And then obviously uh, the most recent and most successful example of anyone who's actually born in Ghana is obviously Ezekiel Ansa, who came to the United States in his late teens. Um, trying to play, with you know, a litany of other sports, basically, basketball and track. Uh, and eventually, this happened on the football, sort of as his last, it was his last chance sport, basically. Well, I'm, I'm big, I'm athletic. Let's see what do. But I mean, he, he, it's, it's just amazing to me that he literally had never seen a book, American-style football game until he was 20, I believe, 20, 21, something like that. He was in his, he was, I think he was in his, I think he might have been 20, when he saw a game, you know? So it's a pretty extraordinary thing that he managed to pull off. But, um, yeah, that's, that wasn't it's supposed to be the initial thrust of the show. Uh, there's a bunch of bowl games coming up sooner rather than later. In fact, just a, less than a week, six days from today, the bowl season begins, Jim. Unbelievably, we'll be in bowl season in six days. Uh, the Celebration Bowl features Grambling versus NC Central, and it's amazing to me how good NC Central has become as a program. I can remember when... NC Central was a CIAA program and not a terribly good one. 
be perfectly honest, we played them. They were considered a not a guaranteed victory, but we felt good going into the games against NC State. So I think in my time at NC, uh, NC State, cause look, in my time at um, at Norfolk State, I believe we were three and one against them in our in my in the four years that I was at at Norfolk uh, State, and I, and I think. Even the one was a game we probably should have won. We just were super sloppy, and I think it was a rainy game. Not that's an excuse, but, you know, we just came out, didn't play well. Um, it would have been inconceivable a few years ago to sell someone on NC Central being able to hold up. Forget beat. Let's hold up against Gramlich. It is a, a testament to just, I mean, coaching matters, uh, as you said before. <laughs> I don't really say it. I don't know if people realize, I, I still think of every major team sport, the one in which coaching is the most impactful might be college football. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because you have, it's mainly just the complexity of, I mean, you know, it's it's complexly simple and simply complex, but, I mean, you mm-hmm. have all these different types of positions. You have to have a coach who knows how to do that. You also have the strategy part of things as well, where like even if you are good at coaching, are you good at the strategy aspect of football games? You know, in terms of getting your guys ready every single week, knowing exactly and, what and they're going to do. And talent evaluation, right? I mean, and at the NFL evaluation. level, you you can you can choose some don't, but it, you can choose to separate the two if you want. There are some you know, guys who are very involved in the time of evaluation process, even amongst pro coaches. But every head coach in college is also your player personnel, head of player personnel. There's no place in college, at least, where you leave that to somebody else. (laughs) Exactly. And that's a lot of hats, you know, and in terms of, you know, a guy who's doing all that stuff. So, you know, it's a lot of stuff you're dealing with. And and, and any time you have one area that doesn't work, you know, whether talent evaluation fails or strategy part of things fail, then that can, you know, that takes you, that takes your team with you, man. You know what I mean? Like it, it definitely strategy will help you a little bit if you have a bad team, but it won't help you that much. You know, at, at a certain point, as the talent gets a little meh, things start to go downhill real quick. Right. So, yeah, that's the, that's the thing that sort of occurs to me as I look at the turnaround. And that's the only thing to put up. You know, this, this is a turnaround program. It is a really good story. Um, you know, NC Central made the jump around the time that my school made the jump from CIAA. Maybe it might have been the season afterwards from the um, – CIAA to the MEAC, and, you know, got beaten up pretty good initially when they made the jump. And now, I mean, just to sort of take you through the season at at NC Central, this is a team that, okay, lost by 43 points to Duke. Obviously, Duke's, you know, very close. I mean, people have close rivalries. Uh, They share a city. Not share a city, but they share a very – they're very close, so put it that way. Yeah, they share a city, actually. They're both in both in, in Durham. Uh, so they're sheep by jowl in terms of, I mean, they're even closer than, I mean, people talk about how close Chapel Hill is. This is even closer. They are, you know, 
probably not even two, maybe two, maybe three miles at most apart from each other. Um, that game stayed close for a little while, and then Duke, obviously, you know, by the middle of the second quarter started to pull away. Uh, they got absolutely destroyed against Western Michigan. Uh, but that, from that point forward, you saw who the, you know, the real NC Central Eagles were. They uh, just, I mean, just, just romped over St. Augs, who are, uh, of course, uh, a Division II program, so that's to be expected. Uh, then in one of their toughest games of the year, they narrowly edged a very game, Knoxville State University Spartans, that stayed right there with them to the very end. Great game. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. Uh, you can at least find the highlights on YouTube. Uh, I, I watched the game, and it was heck of a game. Um, then they faced Bethune-Cookman, which people thought would be a really tough test, and they beat them by actually significantly when they beat Knoxville State. That was 31-14. Uh, they beat a very good Florida A&M, 17-13. Uh, they romped over Savannah State, another former Division II program that came up from the MEAC to the CIA, I mean, from the CIAA to the MEAC, 33-3. They had another tight one, uh, their other really close game, against Morgan State of the MEAC, uh, 21-17. Uh, they then had a not-quite-so-close win over Delaware State. They beat Howard by nine, which is reasonably close. Then they had a somewhat easy day. Some people thought NCANT would give them a really tough fight. They actually did not. Uh, beat them 42-21, and now they are about to face Grambling. It should be noted that the only losses they have this entire season have been to teams in the FBS. Uh, one of them extremely lopsided, and one of them just regular lopsided, I guess. <laughs> but uh, but every time they've played someone in either Division Two or, or the FCS level, they've beaten them, and they've only had three games amongst, you know, their competition or beneath their competition that were not double digits. They had a nine-point victory and then a four- and a three-point victory. So they're a very good team. Uh, and I, I say with some regret that the HBCU schools really don't focus on the FCS playoffs. I, I wish they would. Uh, I think that they would do, some of them would do fairly well if they did. To be noted, the first champion, uh, their original champion, oh, we still want double A in those days, but the first champion when the when they created, in essence, the they used to not be, you know, and one double A. There used to be go from Division One to Division Two. When they created this middle level, the first time they won it, the first time it was, they played it out was uh Jake Gathers, towards the end of his career at Florida A&M, won the first one. And they haven't, uh, no HBC has won it since. And like I said, they don't place much emphasis on it. So I, I hope at some point that'll change. I love the Celebration Bowl and stuff like that. I just oh, I wish they would play it later, frankly, and allow the guys who, uh, who play at the uh, FCS level to, you know, participate, whatever. The HBCs that play at the FCS level, I wish they would, like I said, put their more of their eggs in the um, – in the playoff basket, but they don't. Uh, they don't. They put, and part of it's financial. I'm not going to lie. Uh, they get more money. They they're cash strapped. As you might remember, Grambling at one point forfeited uh, a couple of games just a couple of years ago. I mean, Grambling is essentially the Notre Dame, for lack of putting it, of HBCU football, and to see their program, their program fall into such disrepair. Uh, was shocking and disappointing. A lot of their alumni uh, sent in money. And uh, here's something um, 
say what you want about Shaquille O'Neal. He doesn't brag about certain things that he does. I know for a fact from people close to Grayley's program that a significant, I don't know the exact dollar amount, a significant um, donation was, was received from Shaquille O'Neal, um, sent to their athletic department, which helped them to have an athletic department. I mean, it's just shocking to me how things got. And they've come back a long way from as bad as it was, but it should never should never happen in the first place. Now, do you have, have you had a chance to watch either team uh, this year, either NC State or Grambling? Uh, it's okay if you haven't. I, I mean... I'm, I'm trying to go through the Rolodex of things. Like, uh, I don't... Hmm. I don't know. I just put that much. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, there's been a couple. Well, you have a lot going I, on. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I'm not. Well, let me just sure let me I just say, that. both programs are worth watching. They are. As much a fan I am of HBCU football, I'll be the first to come out and say when they're having a down year altogether as a, as a world of you know as a whole subset of college football. It, a couple of years ago, the HBCU world as a whole had it down. Everything, just everybody, everybody just didn't have the talent that they normally would have. And obviously, they don't have the talent they would have in the 60s, 70s for, you know, hey, you know, desegregation, yay, for the most part. But, you know, that's obviously one of the sort of downsides if you're coaching at that level of football. But here's what I can tell you. This is a pretty good year. There are... Not so much on offense. There's a couple, like me, obviously, uh, Tariq Cohen being the most obvious example in terms of a guy I think has an instant outside shot. Oh, shot yeah, I saw him. Of, yeah, he's worth yeah. watching. Uh, he goes, he's at NCANT, who got eliminated from Celebration Bowl uh, uh, oh. considerations by NC Central, um, who were the better team. But, yes, he's, he was, his team was in the Celebration Bowl last year. In fact, won the Celebration. He was the Celebration Bowl MVP. Last year, in fact, serving he served notice uh, to the world of people who pay attention at least that he's. I mean, people compare him to Darren Sproul. He's not quite that powerful, uh, which sort of sounds funny. I mean, he's almost closer to being Tariq Hill, though he's probably not that fast. He's probably more like four four one as opposed to like four two seven or whatever it is that that Hill was. Uh, but he's fast. <laughs> he's yeah. He's I mean, rarely he... caught from behind fast. <laughs> He honestly kind of reminds me of, like, I mean, he's not as athletic as C.J. Anderson, but he kind of reminds me of, like, a little bit of that. Uh, in, but, in miniature. I mean, <laughs> in miniature, he's like but he's really pounds. fast. But, but what he really has that, you know, what he what he has that's really, really good is his balance. You know, he's very balanced. Yes. Runner, balance. keeps his feet. And, Terrific vision. And, Exactly. So, I mean, those are the main things that just pop off from all the stuff I've seen. I mean, he has speed, but which is evident. I don't think it's going to be like 4-3 speed, though. No. I mean, I don't no, know. No, he's probably but a little 4-4 guy. It is going to be fast, but I just think his just his explosiveness and his, uh, you know, flexibility or things are probably going to stick out a lot more when it comes to, like, athletic testing and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, like I said, he's he's his team is, has been eliminated from Celebration Bowl competition uh, by losing to uh, um, NCANT. I mean, NC um, Central, sorry. 
But NC Central, to me, is one of those great turnaround coaching stories because, like I said, I remember they were a strictly from average CIAA program, you know, 30 or so years ago. And to see them now being a really great, um, I mean, champions of the MEAC, um, undefeated, I mean, in MEAC's way. I mean, they ran, like I said, they had a couple of tight games, a nine, you know, nine-point uh, nine win against uh, Howard Bison and uh, a couple of, like I said, the toughest game was our, our game against, against North State, 34-31. I mean, that was the one school, the one game where they, they really looked like they might lose. Uh, they had a couple of tight ones, a four-point win, and like I said, and a, um, and a nine-point win. And then other than that, they were blowouts the rest of the, pretty much the rest of the season, 21 points or more in every other game, other than the games they played against Western Michigan and Duke. And they were even in the Duke game for a little bit. They were never in the Western Michigan game. And so well, I don't know if that's, you know, the kind of thing you want to use as a comparison to figure out how good Western Michigan is because, like I said, this, this team at least looked for a little bit like they could hang with Duke for a while while they never looked like they had anything for Western Michigan. Um, but, yes, the, here's, the, here's the, the actual factuals. Uh, this is, like I said, um, a coaching job that I think is deserving of mention along with what guys like P.J. Fleck and other guys have done in terms of taking programs ahead not had a lot of great success and taking them to places they just hadn't been recently, at least. Uh, I've been watching HBCU football for a long time, and NC Central has never, in my memory, been a powerhouse. They've had good years, uh, but even back in the CIAA times, and then they've had good years once they joined the MEAC. But being by far the best program in the MEAC, that's, like I said, something – Maybe it happened, I mean, once again, maybe in the CIAA days, before I remember CIAA football, it might have been that good in the CIAA, but I can't remember the big that good in the CIAA, even when they were doing it too. So to me, it's deserving of kudos, like I said. Uh, and they have some players, including, uh, they have, as you may remember, Ryan, um, what was his last name? Smith. You might remember Ryan Smith last year, who was the best prospect on NC Central last year, we actually got drafted oh, in the. Safety. Yes, correct. Yep. You might remember him. I think he was a sixth rounder, if memory serves, last year. Either something like that. Yeah, yeah. Probably shouldn't have gone that low, but yeah. He should not actually. You are correct. Uh, he was better than a lot of safeties that were drafted ahead of him, as we discussed last year. And the same thing will happen to some NC uh, Central athletes this year. The football world as a whole has not quite caught on to how good a program this is. This is one of the better – that's why I kind of wish they had played in the FCS playoff. I don't think they would have won the championship. Like, I know that no, but, I mean, I feel strongly they would not have been able to beat a team like, you know, you know <laughs> San Diego State – not San Diego uh, sorry, not to be there, but um, uh, North Coast State or South Coast State. They're not that good. Right, right, right. Eastern Washington, sure. you know. But they would have but, given, I seem like, Richmond a scare, certainly. Oh, yeah. You know, so that's that's always sort of bothered me a little bit is the lack of, like I said, emphasis and commitment. And I get some of it. Like I said, they have to find money games. I mean, that's 
uh, sadly, the state of affairs for pretty much all HBCU programs is they they go into their scheduling process saying, where can we find the money game? So they're always willing to go to Rutgers or Western Michigan. Uh, Duke, at least, is close. You know, that doesn't require, you know, much much travel. But uh, just going through uh, some of the things that I would point out or highlight or uh, throw at you, whatever term you want to use, about this uh, this institutional program, this NC Central uh, year that they've had. Uh, Coach Mack, once again. I mean, I, I, my question is how long will we be able to hold on to him? Uh, he's a young, dynamic, smart, hardworking, uh, good recruiter. Kids relate to him well. He's a motivator. He's, I mean... He's the package, man. He's basically like the HBCU version of Tom Tom Herman. He is a tremendous coach. I I just can't say enough good things about him. I'm hoping at some point to be able to get to talk to Jerry Mack. He was a runaway winner for the uh, MIAC Coach of the Year. Uh, they this team went nine and two for the first time in its history. In its history. I don't know how else to say that. There's a team that's never gone nine and two in its history. Ever, 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 ever. Since they've been playing football in Central. That's what I want to make clear to you. That's what he did. Like I said, I mean, like what PJ Fleck did to some extent at Western Michigan. Had a level of success he's never had in the history of the program. Eight no in conference play, which they've never done since they've been in the MEAC. Um they Housed uh, nationally ranked NCA and T, and they did share the crown in 2014-2015, which is impressive. I'll get out. This is the first time they've been outright champions since 2012, which is, like I said, their late run of success is just unparalleled in the history of the program. I mean, this is the way I put it. Uh, he's achieved unprecedented success in three pro- three years in the program, and. It, prior to his arrival, this is a losing program. There's no way to put it. So uh, under him, they've been 24 and 10 overall and 21 and 3 in conference since Coach Mack was hired. His 24 victories in three seasons is number one for career starts. Like, in, you know, people who started their career, first three seasons in the history of the program. He's the best program, first coach in the history of the program. I'm just going to say that. I mean, not just the wins, but just what he's done. NC Central football is a thing now for the black community in Durham and Raleigh, North Carolina, in a way it just never was. It just wasn't. Uh, Even alums would go to a Duke game or a Carolina game or an NC State game before they would watch their own school. I'm just telling you from what I know. I still have friends and family in the area. That has changed now. He has revitalized that program. Completely. So I hope the AFCA, I know he's he's um, he's a regional finalist for Coach of the Year. He won his region in the AFCA's uh, Coach of the Year competition. He's a guy who's had 10 years of coaching experience. He's probably 34, something. He's young. I know he's young. Uh, he was the third youngest active uh, Division One coach 
So here's the only one's younger, Paul Nichols of Davidson, who is 35, maybe? 36, 35, 35. No, yeah, 35. P.J. Flex, who is 36, are younger. And then um, just and Flex, just by a couple of months, Jerry Mack is 36 years old. And, you know, like I said, they, they started winning pretty much as soon as he got there. He used to be the uh, quarterback's coach and offensive coordinator at Arkansas Pine Bluff. Uh, before that, he was at Central Arkansas as a pass game coordinator and wide receivers coach. He coached tight ends at Jackson State. He was at Delta State uh, 2004-2005, where he coached the uh, – he was a graduate assistant and also worked with running backs played at Jackson State, and then transferred from there to Arkansas State. And I remember him. Uh, he was not a great player. But he was a decent player. He had three internships in the NFL, uh, one with the Jets, one with the Buffalo Bills. He's been in the NCAA Coaches, uh, Coaches Academy program. And, you know, he's, a, like I said, sort of a rocket. Uh, I mean, he's, he's headed, in my mind, he's headed places. Uh, he was a decent little receiver in his time when I watched him as a player. He wasn't one of those guys that I remember thinking, man, one day that guy's going to be a great coach, mainly because I didn't really notice him that much. I mean, I was aware of him as a player, but he didn't stick out enough so that I, he did things that made me think, man, one day that guy's going to be a great coach. But he is a great coach, not a good one. And like I said, the only concern I have is how long would he be able to hold on to it? Because if I'm, you know, hey, if I lose my head coach and I'm East Carolina or NC State, or even if I'm not even in the, you know, Carolina area and I'm looking for a dynamic young head coach who's offensive-minded, I mean, and of course the other thing is you wonder maybe some big program might try to, I mean, Arkansas State, if they lose their coach, what they tend to do about every three or four years at Arkansas State, I I can't help but wonder if that's a call they would make. It's it's a call I would make. (laughs) I'll put it that way. But, uh, yeah, so that's Jerry Matt in a, in a nutshell. And he's a coach worth knowing. He is definitely a coach worth knowing. Uh, amongst the players on his team, it's, it's a good team. It's not a crazy talented team. They're super well coached. And they play well. They play smart. They, um, yeah, I mean, play hard, play well, play smart. I mean, that's really kind of the extent of what I can say. They're a hardworking, smart team with some good players, good players. Um, They don't have anybody that I like as much as I like Ryan Smith, but they certainly have good players. Uh, Amongst the players on that team, uh, Jamal Simonette, the, the Jamaican kid, is probably the best pro prospect. They did have 17 guys make all-conference, which is, you know, a high, really high number. Uh, between first and second team, and, and I'll mention, had 17 altogether. But many of those guys, I think, basically made it because of the team's success, not because they are freak, you know, athlete or amazing pro prospect types. They just played on a really good team and played really well. Um, highlighting sort of the... The, what do you call it? The uh, there's a word I'm trying to think of. Superlatives. Thank you. Highlighting some of the superlatives of this particular team. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Mycenet 
is an interesting prospect, as almost always when you talk about, you know, he's sort of the type of player he is. He will need to get bigger and stronger if he wants to survive at the next level. But certainly worth watching. Uh, they sort of do a running back by committee approach. So they don't have they have good running backs. So they don't have a single dominant running back. And Malcolm Bell, their quarterback, is amongst their better runners. Uh, he is a guy that they don't want to compare him to Carson Wentz because he's not, you know, physically similar to Mark Carson Wentz, but. The way that he wins games at the collegiate level is somewhat similar, if that makes sense, Jim. Uh, he's a good runner, runs for by about 60 yards a game or something, 50 yards a game, somewhere in that range, and throws for probably right around 200, I mean, sort of from what I've seen. So he's kind of got a little go, doesn't have gaudy numbers, but he'll have 240, 260, 230, 270 total yards. You know, like he watches sort of stat lines through a season. He's never going to, not never, but he's rarely going to pass for 300 yards, and he's rarely going to rush for 100. But if you really needed him to do so, he could, I guess is how I'd put it. But mostly he's the guy that's going to run for 50 and pass for 200 or something like that, if that makes sense. Uh, Who else is worth mentioning on the team? They have one receiver that I like, but he's not featured. I mean, not featured in the sense of they don't throw the ball a lot, first of all. And in addition to not throwing the ball a great deal, they don't believe in, you know, having a guy, you know, in terms of, you know, being the featured guy. So they spread the ball around both in the running game and the passing game, and you just have to, I don't know, live with it. I don't know how to put it. It's got to be a... Find a way to be okay with that. But um, the, the, amongst their receiving group, the amongst the receiving core, the one that I have found most interesting is Jalen Wilkes. And once again, I mean, he can be very quiet at times. I remember against Norfolk State, he only had one catch for 11 yards. And I think at least in part because he had had a pretty good game the week before against St. Augs. And I believe Norfolk State probably had game plan for him a little bit. But he's also run a little bit. Uh, they they run him some. I mean, not a lot, but some. He uh, he's a guy who's sort of capable of being a, a threat in the uh, you know jet sweep, reverse, uh, end around, orbit motion, all those various ways of handing or pitching or whatever the ball to your um, to your wide receiver behind the. A uh, lot of scrimmage. He's a guy who shows pretty good idea of what to do once he has the ball in his hands as a ball carrier. Uh, he got shut down pretty slowly against uh, Duke, and he's just a sophomore, I believe, going off my memory of him. But he's physically the most impressive of all of their their receivers. He seems to be the fastest, at least once again, just sort of estimating based on what I've seen. Um, I'm not even physically most impressive. Probably about six one ish, probably about 193 pounds, something like that. And he does have that classic X receiver build. You know, he looks, you know, like the guy, or who he'll be the guy. I think one day amongst their receivers. Right now, he's, you know, probably number two or number three in targets. I'm guessing on the, on last season, but he just looked the most talented of them all to me. 
Um, let's see, who else is worth mentioning? Amongst, that's the thing that's sort of interesting is how, especially on the offensive side of the ball, they don't have a bunch of guys who are just like, wow, man, that guy's amazing. Um, they don't. That's not how their team is really built. Uh, Reggie Hunter, I liked on defense amongst their secondary guys. He's the one that caught my eye the most. Um, once again, you know, a guy that does it really with from the neck up. Not a bad athlete, but not super explosive. Um, Levante Smith is a guy that gives him some oomph in the – he can be a little bit of a right. He can run the ball, he can catch the ball, and he's a good return guy. Uh, let me see. Who else was mentioning? Uh, oh, Antonio Brown. Uh, not that Antonio Brown. But um, – they have a couple of guys on defense who are poor, like I said, sort of caught my eye. Uh, Frederick, uh, Henry Aduju, speaking of uh, natives of the of the continent, and then Antonio Brown amongst their, their downline types of the, amongst the more impressive players. And uh, let's see, probably the most athletic of them is Henry... Uh, Ajadua, I guess is probably how it's pronounced. I think about it, but he's uh, um, he's a guy that was a soccer player. Not surprisingly, um, like you would expect from a kid who grows up, you know, on the continent. Um, probably about two hundred forty-seven pounds. Probably about six one and three eight, something like that. He'll either have to figure out how to play linebacker or I mean, he has, he's a good athlete. Um, like so many kids that go up playing soccer, he has really good feet and really good balance. Uh, what else to say about him? Uh, I guess in terms of people, you might consider him somewhat like. I mean, he has some of the same strengths and weaknesses as a guy like D. Ford. Uh, obviously, I'm not making that actual comparison to would freak out. If I were, um, he's not as polished as D. Ford. He's not as powerful as D Ford. Uh, but he's a guy who's reasonably new to football. Played his first football game, he's something like sixteen or seventeen years of age. So you know, still figuring it all out as a football player, but he's worth watching. I guess what I'd say he's probably their best um prospect. If you're looking at guys who might someday play at the next level. So if you want to put someone on your watch list, that's probably the guy to do it, at least amongst the guys on the NC Central's roster. Until so the last name is spelled, well, Henry, hyphen, and then A-J-U-D-U-A. Yeah, so Henry Adudua. And like I said, fairly new to football, but a talent. Um, I'm trying to think of who else to mention. Um, yeah, that's really. I mean, there's other guys who are good players. They're just not unlikely to um, to make much of an impact at the next level. And the funny thing is, the first time he suited up to play football in his life, you never guess what position he was playing initially. Uh, he was a high school uh, oh. quarterback. No, place kicker. Oh. He was because he was a soccer kid. 
right? So that was what he did initially. Right. <laughs> um, so when he first got to Hillsdale High, you know, the, that's when he really knew how to do it first. <laughs> he could kick. It's like, oh. So it really took him until his senior year of high school to play something other than place kicker. So his, his junior year, while he was trying to sort of figure out football, he was a place kicker, believe it or not, a very big athletic place kicker. Uh, interestingly enough. Yep, that's – he even um, kicked one in a 4A state championship game, kicked a uh, field goal, about six feet tall, about 200 pounds as a 16-year-old. But, yes, that was uh, interesting. And, of course, coming to the United States at 16, you know, like I said, there was some culture shock. So, yeah, uh, Ryan Smith went 108 overall to Tampa Bay. And his D-line coach, Jonathan Bradley, who himself played four years in the NFL, you know, thinks he has a shot once he, you know, grows more in understanding and just grows more physically in terms of, I mean, he's a guy who clearly should pipe in another 10 to 12 pounds of muscle. And once he does so, and once again, learns more about football, I mean, because his main thrust, like so many kids who are, you know, parents are African immigrants, is education. He's a kid with a really high GPA in pharmacy school, you know, which is really plan A. Football is plan B as it is with most African kids. So that's a guy I just thought I would mention. I mean, he's, to me, the most physically talented of that bunch. And Stafford has some guys, too. Let's see here. Is Isaiah with us? Who, who else has hopped on? That's not Isaiah. Who is that? Is that Ken? I don't know. Maybe he's just a listener. But... Uh, Grambling always, right? Like I said, even in their worst of times, and Grambling family not long ago went through its worst of times in the state of oh. Louisiana had basically abandoned I think, them. Yep. I think the person who hopped on might be might be Pete Smith, but I Get I out of know. here. Get out of here. Might really? Be. Yeah. Oh my God. Really? Could be. <laughs> but I don't know. That would be pretty crazy. Yeah, that's that's it's, Jim had asked me a, a while ago to hop on, so I jumped on. <laughs> oh my stars and garters. Well before we go any further, Coach Smith, how did your season go? Oh, uh, we did actually pretty well. Uh when uh I mean we won nine to two in the regular season. Won the Star League. Uh, undisputed for the first time, I guess that that league is their that team's done it like about two decades. A few other things, but then we lost in a uh, uh, last second sort of deal, first round of the playoffs. So that uh, was less than ideal, but overall, it was good. Okay. Well, my heartiest congratulations. Hope. As anyone's ever been in a coaching room realizes, winning a game is hard. Um, so many things can go wrong, and so many things that shouldn't go wrong somehow find a way to go wrong. Things that you couldn't possibly have anticipated, uh, especially. I mean, obviously, it's at every level, but when you're talking about fifteen, sixteen, seventeen-year-old people, they are by their very nature unpredictable. They don't know themselves what they're about to do half the time. So uh, I have an enormous respect for anyone who coaches 
high school football players. It is probably one of the most impactful things that you can do in a young person's life is to coach them. So thank you for what you do. So we were sort of getting started on the bowl season. And, you know, once again, debate for another show. There are a lot of bowl games. Some people would say too many. But uh, we are less than a week away from the fun beginning. And I was sort of walking through, looking through, however you want to put it, uh, the one that sort of kicks it off, the Celebration Bowl, which is a relatively newish, youngish creation where the champion of the Mid-East Athletic Conference faces the champion of the Southwest Athletic Conference. And not surprisingly, people used to sort of assume that the SWAC would walk through it, and that's proven to not be the case. <laughs> the MEAC has more than held its own, and I believe this year will probably be similar. Uh, Coach Jerry Mack, who I just recently got finished praising to the heavens, <laughs> um, <laughs> because I think he's one of the better young coaches in football. And like I said, my only concern is how long will NC Central be able to retain its services because I, I'm convinced somebody will come calling from a larger program sooner rather than later. But he's done tremendous things. He's the most successful coach in the history of the program. This program is better than it's ever been in its history. And like I said, what he's done is, in my mind at his level is comparable to what P.J. Fleck did at his. Except, I guess, more sustained success since I guess really Coach Fleck has essentially – you know, had a good year last year and then, of course, this watershed year this year. Well, Coach Mack has had three truly outstanding uh, seasons back-to-back-to-back. And then I was just mentioning uh, Grambling, of course, is a traditional power uh, in HBCU football. Essentially, as you said, the Notre Dame of HBCU football. Some people can't name two HBCU schools, but the one that they can't name um, is Rambling, largely due to what Eddie Robinson did in literally building a program from what was little more than a you know club team, basically, when he found it, and turning it into one of the great programs, period. Uh, Rambling at its height could have played with anybody with any resources, you know, Grambling at its height could have hung with anybody. I don't care who you would have brought in front of those Grambling teams of the 60s and early 70s could play with anybody. And you look at the rosters and it's just the mind boggles a little bit when you realize this, you know, if you've ever been on Grambling's campus, it's not an impressive looking campus. I mean, no offense, but it's not, it's nothing makes you ooh and ah about the look of Grambling's campus. I'll leave it to that. And to see, to think, you know, who actually was on that practice field, you know, guys that are in the Hall of Fame, you know, several of them obviously played. And obviously the, the peak of that time was, as I was saying, the late 60s and early 70s when those programs were, were, at, were at their peak. And then obviously the segregation by the late 70s had reduced the program from being an absolute juggernaut. It's still a very good program, and he was managed to stay a very good program for a long time, even after that. And then Grambling eventually, like I said, ran on very hard times a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, they had all kinds of things. MRSA, water contamination. I mean, it was crazy. Um, 
I mean, just name something bad. <laughs> At one point, it seems to be happening to that program. So hats off. Let's see. It's the Grambling program, a proud program that ran into, you know, a tough stretch, I think we can <laughs> say, to be, be fair, and have come out on the other end of it uh, with the help of some people. And let's not forget that there's a team that, you know, earlier this year gave a real scare to the Arizona Wildcats. Now, some people say it's more about Arizona than it is about Grambling. I would say it's probably about 50-50. But Coach Broderick Fobbs, another guy who's done a great, great job, another former wide receiver, if memory serves it correctly, along with Jerry Mack, the other top coach in, um, in HBCU football. And in just a few games, like uh, just a few days, six days, uh, we, they will, like I said, kick off the bowl season. There are several good players, including their quarterback, that are probably not quite NFL guys. So even though I think they have guys who sort of deserve to be in a camp, I don't see too many of them being impactful types. But there certainly are a couple of guys I will certainly make make mention of. Uh, NCNT did beat Alcorn last year in the uh, inaugural Celebration Bowl. And it was a success in every way that it can be judged a success. They got good ratings, about 35,000 and change, if memory serves me correctly, were in attendance. And uh, ESPN Events, interestingly enough, is actually the owner. Uh, I think it's the only bowl game that ESPN actually flat out owns. It is the creation of ESPN. So I guess that's one reason it's been fairly successful. ESPN is very strongly behind it and does a lot to, you know, help it to succeed. Yeah. But that being, yeah, <laughs> but that being stated, if the football weren't good, and it was good football for those who watched last year's Celebration Bowl, uh, none of that would make a difference. If it was terrible, people <laughs> still would, would, would not be watching. So it gives the, it's an early bowl game, obviously very early, the first. So it gives one of two that, one of only two games that whole day, it gives a chance for HBCU um, football to be front and center in front of everybody. We now have a 40-game college bowl season. That's, wow. <laughs> it just hit me, 40. Four a lot of games. That's a lot of <laughs> so, uh, ten and one Grambling, and nine and two NC Central. Though I would say NC Central has played the far tougher schedule. As I mentioned, obviously Western Michigan and Duke are the only two losses. And I'll just come out and say it: the MIAC, top to bottom, was tougher than the SWAC this year. Which I rarely find myself saying, but I think it's. If you've looked at a lot of swack and a lot of MIAC football, it's difficult, in my mind, to even argue the point. And as an offense, uh, it's an interesting offense, NC Central. They average about 31 points a game, and they give up about 24. So, they, like I said, they tend to win by about seven points. Uh, Malcolm Bell is a redshirt senior, as I mentioned before. He's not a great passer, but he's a serviceable passer and a pretty good runner. Uh, Almost 2,200, like 2,100 and change of the passer, 16 touchdowns, I think 12 interceptions, very correctly, rushed for 500 and change, and about nine rushing TDs. 
And the the best passer in their history of the school is a guy named Earl Air Harvey, who I remember from the the old days. And then the SWAC, uh, they were getting beaten up, frankly, against Oxford State and then uh, rallied uh, to beat them 27-20. So it was an interesting game to watch. Uh, Devontae Kincaid and Donovan McRae both had really good years for Stanford. Stanford, good Lord. Uh, for <laughs> Grambling. And they're the only FCS team. Not HBCU, FCS team have a top five offense and a top five defense. Once again, I won't go into my frustrations about them having to go for the money and give up their chances to play for an FCS championship. But I'd love to see both these schools, NC Central and Grambling, in the FCS playoffs, but whatever. Um, they average 500, over 500 yards per game, 41, over, you know, over 40 points per game. Kincaid was 66% of the passer. 29 touchdowns, two interceptions, uh, over 2,800 yards passing, and a defense that only averaged a little less than 16 yards per game allowed. So that's some of what people will be excited about. And as I mentioned, um, uh, Mycinet and uh, Henry uh, uh, Adajua are the two best players, both on defense, at least uh, for me. On it. They have and they have a pretty good um, – uh, they have like a couple of edge guys, as I mentioned, and then they have a couple of guys in the secondary that were watching. But they have really just one real pro prospect, in my mind, uh, NC Central, NFL prospect, but that differently. They have three or four pro prospects, and one real NFL prospect in NC Central. Like I said, to me, it's really a coaching – amazing coaching job. So I truly think Grambling is the more talented team. But I wonder if Coach Mack and his staff might have, like I said, something or two up their sleeve. I won't be shocked if uh, NC Central, the more battle-tested, frankly, of the two schools, comes out there with a victory. And that brings us to our second game. Uh, So the game, and of course, I'm going to be in your ear in a second, Pete, about the wide receivers because this is an interesting a lot of discussion has been had, I'll put it that way, about the uh, people early on, uh, well, by, by people, I mean draft Twitter, early on we're calling this a weak receiver class. Now, it seems like they've come around a bit. We'll talk about it in a second. So in terms of the second um, on the roster, second uh, New Mexico, the next the bowl, the always exciting New Mexico bowl, features UTSA versus, you guessed it, New Mexico. Uh, in beautiful Albuquerque, which is a 2 p.m. kickoff on the Eastern Seaboard. UCSA is another one of those programs I'm not at all surprised got to be good and got to be good fast, partially because it's it's San Antonio, Texas, where there's super amazing high school football, and all you have to do is find kids who want to stay close to home and maybe weren't getting recruited by Texas, Texas A&M, or... You know, Baylor, under-recruited, whoever, right? Under-recruited, which is plenty of those. Those, there's plenty of those those guys. I mean, nowadays you might get Drew Brees. I mean, if Drew Brees were, you know, a high school kid now, because you know he wouldn't have to go to Purdue. You, hey, we've got this fun, interesting program right here. You know, just uh, easy drive away for your parents. 
And New Mexico, once again, is one of those programs that was pretty good for a long time. Rocky Long built pretty darn good program and was then, you know, rather, I mean, I don't know, seemed like he rather, <laughs> to me, his firing seems silly, but whatever. Uh, but now they're they're back, you know. And UTSA has a pretty interesting offense. Not interesting in the sense of schematically. I mean, everybody, not everybody, but um, it's similar to the offenses you've seen pretty much every week if you watch a lot of college football. But interesting in some of the guys that are in it. Uh, not surprisingly, it's a, a mix of, you know, kids from the San Antonio area, guys who transferred in from Big 12 or, yeah, Big 12. <laughs> That's kind of uh, programs, uh, junior college, prospects, and the like, <laughs> and the like. They went six and six and finished second in the West in the um, in the conference. In, in, in a funny way, maybe their most impressive game they had all year was a loss. They lost uh, on the 19th of November by just 13 points to Texas A&M. And just to illustrate, I mean, that's the kind of game they would have lost by seven touchdowns just four or five years ago. I mean, this, this program has come a long way. So it's, it says a lot that that was a very competitive game all the way through to the end. I don't know if either of you two have actually seen uh, the Roadrunners of uh, UTSA yet this year. Pete, Jim, oh. Jim, Pete, either of you? Yeah. Uh, I've seen New Mexico. I haven't seen UTSA yet, though I have no excuses because I have lots of UTSA tape. But um, but I have seen New Mexico though. Okay. Well, New Mexico. Then we'll talk about them in a moment. I'll I'll just hit on a couple of the. Uh, this is obviously their uh, first bowl game in the history of the program. It being a very new program, uh, it started under Coach Coker, uh, who many people obviously remember from his days at, at Miami. And he took that program from, you know, nothing, uh, for that way of putting it, to something that was pretty competitive. I mean, they weren't a great program, but he, but he certainly left, he left the, the, you know, left in good hands. Uh, so when he handed that program off, it was in a much better state than the way he found it, clearly. This is a program that, it, you know, is finding its traditions, establishing its traditions, making up its traditions as it goes along. Uh, its first NFL-ish player was, of course, David Morgan. Uh, those of us who part of, you know, the tight end part of draft Twitter uh, remember the, the uh, travails and excitement and whatever else you want to say about his sort of announcing uh, his himself. Uh, the future is bright. They have a kid, I believe his name is Tua Effa, I'm guessing is how it's pronounced, uh, who I think is going, by the time he's done, he's just a freshman. In fact, he's a conference freshman of the year. But I think by the time he's done there, I mean, he'll obviously hold all of the, all of the records. <laughs> um, yeah, that's one of the great things, I guess, about being a part of a new program. But uh, he's a really good program. Kid, 104 tackles. Seven and a half tackles for loss, five sacks, seven uh, hurries, and an interception. He was, 
he was a former defensive end. In fact, he started the season defensive end, and a combination of things, uh, I think injury and the fact that teams were, you know, just sort of pushing him around, even though he's strong for his size, and pushing him around at, at the end, they just moved to the linebacker, and boom, he became the best player on their entire defense, despite the fact he was a freshman once they did that. He was astonishing. Um, he was great in the Alabama State game. He had a couple sacks, 13 tackles. And just missed, not once again, it's a new program, but just missed setting the games, the school's single-game tackle record when it gets old to me, he got 15. Really impressive kid. I think you will like him a great deal when you do see him, um, Jim. So when you watch him, tell me what you think. But yeah, Josiah, Josiah, sorry, Tuaefa. Other guys in that program who are actually worthy of mention. Um, but yeah, he's, to me, by far the best player. But other guys worthy of mention. Let's see. Uh, they have a couple other guys who I think are guys who will probably be in an NFL camp. I'll put it that way. So, once again, it's a great coaching job uh, that they've gotten where they are as quickly as they've gotten there. But other uh, Marcus Davenport is a guy who will be in an NFL camp. Uh, let me see. They have a senior safety named Michael Iguagu, who's um, he's sort of a tough guy. Davenport's just a junior. He's a uh, Willie Young type. Willie Young, now of the formerly of the Lions, now of the Bears, and of course played in NC State was a teammate of Mario uh, Williams. He was the other the other pass rusher. <laughs> When Mario Williams was, you know, the guy, obviously, at NC State. Similar to that guy. That's who this kid reminds me of. Davenport reminds me of, of Willie Young. He's probably, I don't know, 6'5 in three quarters. He's really tall in the range. He's probably about 242 pounds. He looks like a tight end, basically. But uh, as, he, as he continues to fill out and everything, he, he should be fun. Anybody else really worth discussing? Um, uh, their best offensive lineman is Javante Domond, who's a guy that is a uh, former LSU commit, comes there via junior college. I think he went to Glendale. Don't quote me on that. Junior college with Murray Schultz. I think, think somewhere out west. Uh, he's not terrible. Um, they have a edge safety. Or is it force force safety? Named Jordan Moore that you might want to check out. He's another transfer. He's transferred twice. He's a double transfer. TCU by way of LSU, or is it LSU by way of TCU? One or the other. But he's he attended both schools. He registered at one, then had a year of eligibility. He spent the other, and then made his way finally to UTSA. And probably their most interesting why, uh, uh, offensive player is a junior wide receiver named Josh Stewart, who's about six. We got a quarter, about a buck ninety-eight. Really, rail thin, but can run a little bit. Uh, build up speed. I mean, he's not a guy who's going to have a, probably an amazing free cone or short shuttle. But I wouldn't be shocked if he was low four fives in the forty. Big hands. Uh, a guy that was an up transfer from Midwestern State, and I first spotted him in Midwestern State. He actually was, you know, off to a good start there, and I think he just. 
sort of took note of the UCSA program and said, I, you know, I can play at the FBS level, and I know that they need guys, which they did, and he stepped right in and began to produce there. So you guys have seen New Mexico, though, right? Have you just said, Jim? Yes, I've seen New Mexico, yeah. Okay. Well, who caught your eye amongst the, the Lobos? Well, that's actually the problem. Uh, not not that many. Um, I uh, I mean, there's definitely some guys. I mean, the the best prospect, at least draft eligible prospect that I actually saw, was uh, Nick uh, Diavanzo, the sort of defensive tackle, five tech kind of thing. Um, and he's, you know, I'm not gonna say he's bad. Obviously, but there's there's just a lot of different things in terms of uh, not a lot of effective pass rush moves, uh, not very good against the run 100%. Um, but he did have some things that stuck out. I mean, some of the things that worked for him uh, in terms of uh, not necessarily speed rush, but I think he had a couple bull rushes that were effective at times. But um, He's really productive for where he's at, but he's also where he's at. So that's only I would really <laughs> say about him. Uh, Blaze Fountain, the center there at New Mexico, is a little bit undersized, has a couple things here and there that are okay from a movement standpoint. And the same thing goes with the guard there, Reno Henderson, who I think is the tackle there. Uh, but I kind of see him more as a guard. He has some decent movement skills, but he's as raw as I'll get out, man, in terms of just, you know, from the technical aspects uh, and also strength, too. So uh, they got some guys that can do that. Dakota Cox at linebacker there is – he's your classic old-school linebacker in all the worst ways. Like, he has decent size. He doesn't move well in space. He doesn't tackle especially well in space. He's strong enough to make tackles, though, but he also kind of struggles when it comes to offensive linemen getting into his face. So he's just not very great. And then they have a wide receiver there, too, and Damian Gambling, who is – I didn't really see anything about – him. A lot of it has to do with the offense that they have, obviously, uh, but I just didn't see very good route running. I didn't see very good stuff after the catch. I just kind of saw kind of a mediocre wide receiver in the Mount West Conference. And Ryan Santos and Daniel Henry at safety are like unguided missiles, but they're like the USSR missiles that are kind of old and there's some stuff, that, you know, there's there's some things that weren't done properly in their construction. Yeah, so they might they be leaking propellant. Is that what you're saying? Jim? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I mean, I'm just not trying to be mean or anything. I just I don't know. I just didn't like many of the New Mexico prospects this year, at least the draft eligible ones that I saw. So I'll just leave it at that. But Nick Delavanzo is a project in the sense of like I do see some things that you could play with if you put some more weight on him and, and you do some things with him but 
he's just so far away from just getting to that point of like staying on a practice squad that I, I don't know how well it's going to go for him in terms of, you know, at the NFL level. Okay. Got it. So I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb. I kind of believe UTSA is about to get its first bowl victory in its first bowl game. I think they will. Uh, I mean, because <laughs> as much, I mean, again, I, I I saw UTSA versus Texas A&M. I just didn't focus on any players, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I was actually watching the, the Texas A&M players, and they – as a team, they looked good. You know, they looked, they didn't, now a lot of it had to do with, of course, Texas A&M was like coming off. Everybody was banged up in that game, man. You know, like everybody, you know, was, was just hurt or injured or limping around. And Miles Garrett had a bunch of sacks in the game, but it was limping sacks. You know, it was, it was kind of like that, you know, like he was still getting sacks even though he was limping. Uh, which does, I, to me, I just shows something about his football character. You know, he's injured and he's out against UTSA and he's still trying to get, you know, trying to produce and stuff. But, and then, of course, Hubenak was the quarterback there and he was just kind of, eh, he's a little bit better in terms of consistency compared to Trevor Knight. Because Trevor Knight was very, very erratic at times this year for whatever reason. Um, I don't know if it's just because he's Trevor Knight, but Human Egg was kind of like that too. But Only UTSA not held, held their own. <laughs> but yeah, but UTSA held their own. I mean, they definitely ha- didn't have as much talent as Texas A&M for obvious reasons. But um, I would not be surprised if UTSA got this victory. And to be honest, I'm actually kind of surprised New Mexico got doable this year uh, <laughs> based on the games that based on the games that I saw this year, which I saw about three games of them in terms of, uh, in, you know, individual prospects, about three. I didn't watch three games for every one of them, but just three games over, you know, over the course of a couple months. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm very surprised that they, you know, are at a bowl game. But UTSA, I'm not that surprised, based on the Texas A&M game that they had, obviously. Got it. And is Pete still with us? Yeah, what's up? So, <laughs> um, two things. One, at some point I am going to have to ask you about the state of affairs in, in Cleveland. I mean, not so much, you know, wins and losses, because I think that's been beaten into the ground, but more... We have a mission, and we have to complete it. Right, exactly. Like I said, I see no reason to beat that into the ground. Uh, I'll just ask a few things about sort of where you would like to, what things you'd like to address, where and when. But I'll first ask you about the wide receiver class. I have seen people, like I said, early on, it seems like they've warmed up to it, but called this a weak class. I remember people saying this out loud. And I thought to myself, what do you mean? There's no Julio Jones. Yeah, there's no Megatron, you know, maybe not even a Des Bryant, but it's not a weak class. It's just a class that looks different from maybe some classes in the recent past. So I'll ask you, one, what do you think of this class of wide receivers and where do you think the, the strength of it, the meat of it is? Well, the the idea of a weak wide receiver class generally stems from big talent at big programs. Uh, so 
when people say that, they're usually looking at, you know, most of the huge, you know, the big name schools, and they're not seeing, you know, the the stud guys. I mean, granted, you know, you've got Schuster and you've got Mike Williams, although he was a question mark coming into the season. Um, but you know, you don't look at guys like Corey Davis. You don't look at guys uh, like the kid in Washington. You don't look at you know Dede Westbrook, who's you know he's fine. He's not the greatest. John Ross is 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 you know very talented. Uh, and, and there are just so many wide receivers, uh, because of the nature of the game that, you know, their guys are going to find a way to make, make an impact and, and, and broaden the, the talent of the class. It's just always a question of, are they going to have the, the super top end guys that, you know, you're going to love in the first round. And, and this class certainly has a few, uh, Corey Davis might be the best guy in the class. Uh, you know, Mike Williams. Um, is terrific, but my big question is going to be how is he going to test with speed and how is he yep. going to test as far as his medical? Because if you're going off the tape before the neck injury, um, it was it was a, a question of uh, when, not if. I mean, he was uh, he was everything Clemson receivers uh, were touted to be, except he knew how to be a wide receiver, which the rest of them <laughs> right. don't. Uh, so now you're coming off this neck injury and, and just watching on tape, I'm not totally convinced he has the same speed. I hope, I hope for his sake, he does. I hope for his sake that when we get to testing time and, and when he can focus on it, that he's going to get back to being that player. Um, I, I'm certainly rooting him for to get that, but there are times when I sort of watch him when I'm reminded a little bit of Mike Williams out of USC in that he's, fantastic at being so much bigger and stronger than the guys he's going against that he can just go up for passes and, and, and make plays in that regard as opposed to just uh, winning because he knows how to get open. Uh, right. So there, there's a small question on that part. Corey Davis, um, one of the most exciting things that could happen for me in this, in this sort of draft process would be Corey Davis going to the senior bowl. Uh, because he's outstanding. I mean, you can watch his tape and, and, and you can see all these things he can do. But if he goes down to Mobile and, you know, you have a good showing of, of corners coming out, uh, he will get to showcase just how strong he is and how smooth he is in, in running routes. And I think that that would give him the opportunity to sort of vault himself into the top class because I think there are a lot of people who still are going to hold the Mac against him. And now, granted, they're going to have, you know, they're shot in the Cotton Bowl uh, to sort of showcase a little bit. But um, I, I don't know if he's – everybody's going to believe in him sort of enough. Um, but, and you know, at the same time, I, I do think some guys are getting artificially inflated a bit. Uh, I've got – I've seen, you know, Talk of John Ross, Ross is everything people thought Corey Coleman was going to be, as if Corey Coleman is, you know, sort of a done deal. I think it's a little confusing. Uh, I always thought Coleman was in project, but, uh, but he's, you know, that's, 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 I don't see where you're holding that against him. But if you talk about sort of the, the middle of the class and some of these other guys that can do it, obviously people are going to want to see Cooper Cup against, uh, you know, bigger talent, but, you know, you see guys like Ryan, Ryan Switzer 
um, and, and all the talk about Mitch Trubisky and how talented he is, Ryan Switzer is never covered. He's just always open. <laughs> He's always open. As people always joke, I can't wait to see what he does with the Patriots. <laughs> right. It, it, well, it's, in North Carolina's seemingly stolen the – it seems to be the, the, the factory for future Patriots and Bengals with the amount of twitchy white guys they found uh, in their receiving core that just seem to get open and make plays. Uh, but, yeah, so, I mean, there are going to be receivers in every draft. It's just it's just the nature of football and the way it's gone. It's just there are just too many ways for guys to find ways to make plays and, and, and get open at every level of the game. I don't care, uh, you know, the Ivy League, SWAC, NEAC, wherever, FCS, if you can play, they're going to find you, especially at wide receiver, because it's just too easy uh, to to get receivers. So, I mean, it's it's always going to be a question of, is there enough top end talent? Now, the only thing that could hurt this receiver class is the fact that so many other things are so damn good in this class uh, that they could get pushed down a little bit, as they rightly should. You can always find receivers, but there's certainly enough guys. That, that make this class interesting. Uh, but obviously, you know, everything's as, as with every year and every position, we'll see what the underclassmen decide to do. Yes, exactly. And, and I like John Ross, but I see a guy who's, you know, maybe in the top half of the second. And my comparison is Santana Moss, um, only not quite as refined, frankly, as Santana Moss was coming out. But close, I mean, I think he's close to a guy like Santana Moss. And people sometimes compare DD to Emmanuel Sanders, sometimes compare him to Sean. Uh, you know, the guy he reminds me most of was a guy who had a great USFL and uh, and uh, NFL career as well, a guy named Ricky Saunders, uh, who was part of the fun bunch at one point with Washington and had a terrific career with youth and gamblers, uh, was a favorite target of a young Jim Kelly in the old USFL, but that's who I really see when I watch D.D. Uh, uh, Westbrook. And I, I think that if you're the right kind of offense, if you're Arizona and you get a shot to take D.D. Westbrook, in, in the, even in the first, that's a – I mean, people sort of laugh at them taking another wide receiver. First of all, Larry Fitzgerald's not going to play forever, people. Um, you know, I, if he's either at the end or very, very close to the end. So they're going to be a very different kind of wide receiver core in the future. I mean, they're going to have to take a bigger guy at some point, but it looks like what they do best in their, at least when they're at their best as a, I mean, it's old school. It's, you know, what the Raiders used to do back circa 1973 in the passing game, just put a bunch of track guys basically out there and challenge you to, can you backpedal, turn and run with these guys as we just send a bunch of 4-3 dudes at you? When you look at Arizona at its finest, at its best, I mean, it's pounding the rock with, you know, maybe the best all-around running back. I mean, no offense to Ezekiel Elliott. People sort of anointing him a little early, but I've watched, you know, watched him, and he's very, very good. But to me, David Johnson's still the number one all-around running back in football, uh, if you're asking me. <laughs> now, Ezekiel Elliott might get there. You know, he's a kid. Who knows what he'll be three years from now. But right now, today, you know, I would take David Johnson or any running back all around in the league. But then, like I said, after that, the next best part of their offense, since, you know, at this point in his career, Larry Fitzgerald has become 
you know, Heinz Ward, basically, a great blocker in both the running game and, uh, you know, some of their sort of uh, screen game and things like that. He's a terrific blocker. And then he's also become a almost like a mini tight end, like Heinz Ward was, in the way they use him in the passing game. And then attacking, you know, with all those streak and go and, you know, curl and go and hook and go and plant and go and whatever and goes, all the various and goes with all the uh, John Browns and J.J. Nelsons. And if they were to, you know, put him into that mix, D.D. Westbrook, who's not huge, obviously, listed at six feet tall, probably not that tall, um, listed at 174 or five or something, whatever it is, maybe that, but he's a giant compared to C.J. Nelson and John Brown, uh, who are, you know, both in the five, in nine, and 160 to 170 something range themselves. But either way, I think if you're the right kind of team, D.D. Westbrook, whether he's your number one or not, the term is beginning to not mean what it used to mean anyway. Uh, you know, in the 1960s, your number one was, you know, your X receiver. And you only had two anyway. <laughs> you only had two. And then you your, you know, had your Z, who sometimes was a speed Z, if you were a team where your main guy was sort of a bigger, slower, you know, Raymond, if Raymond Berry was your main guy, then Jimmy Orr was your Z, you know, because Raymond Berry wasn't a speed guy, but he could get open all the time. And then on other teams, the way around, you're, your Z would be the possession guy, and then your speed guy would be the X. But either way, you've only had really two receivers. So your number one, number two is pretty easy to figure out. There are lots of teams. I mean, Julian Edelman, some people refuse to acknowledge that a guy like Julian Edelman could be a number one receiver because he's a flat receiver or whatever, whatever reasons are. And, uh, well, if he's the guy you throw the ball to the most amongst your receivers, I, whatever. I don't know how people define the term anymore. But um, then let me just ask you a couple of questions regarding the Browns. Obviously, Pete, this is a rebuilding year, I think would be fair to say, and a year of preparation for what is to come. If you're being brought in as a consultant to the Browns and they're saying, Jim, Jim, not Jim, good Lord, not Jim, Pete, if they're saying to you, Pete, if you're stacking the board, what are we doing? You know, rounds one through seven, and of course, you've got multiple picks in some of these rounds, but... What are we doing, and how are we approaching the draft? Are we moving up? Are we moving down? Are we? What are we doing, and how are we making these decisions about how we approach the draft? Uh, as long as they do what they're supposed to, uh, and finish with the top pick, they can they can write Miles Garrett's name on the card now. <laughs> uh, if they don't, if they don't pick him, you know that's just you know defying any and all logic. Uh, and and what that can do, because as bad as the Browns are, they actually have some things that look pretty pretty promising, especially in the front seven. Uh, I mean, Danny Shelton is very good. Uh, J- Jamie Collins is really really good. Uh, Chris Kirksey yeah. is very good. And yeah. so you add you add guys like Nassib, who's a rookie, and Agba, who's a rookie, who are both uh, getting better. Uh, and you add Garrett on the other side, suddenly you have a very talented group that could actually be potentially special uh, down the road. I mean, that's the obvious thing. And then because they have the Eagles pick, 
um, they also have sort of the flexibility that should make them feel, you know, no uh, fear at all in taking Garrett whatsoever. I mean, the way the Eagles now granted they're they're uh, winning right now, which is a disgrace that the Redskins need to win. Uh, but the, the the likelihood is that pick's going to end up being in the in the around the top ten. It could be you know seven to thirteen area, and you have the ammo if you want it. If you are um, in love with the quarterback, you have the assets to where you can go and move up a couple spots and try to get him. Whether that's Mitch Trubisky, that's Sean Watson, uh, or if they want to be a little more patient uh, and they, they you know they're, they're system of analysis has them like somebody like Luke Falk. Uh, there was a report today that they have been scouting Deshaun Kaiser, which I think is a mistake, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, so it goes Garrett and quarterback uh, or, you know, whatever. If they don't go quarterback, I think it becomes a situation where they are likely taking a DB, but even if they don't take it there, one of the top, They've got two picks in the first round, two picks in the second round, and if they assuming if they keep them all, uh, they they need to take a, a DB with one of those picks, whether it's a corner or free safety. It really doesn't matter which, as long as you know they fit what they want to do. And then to me, the thing I'd like to see them do is is get Jake Butt um, for what he can do for this offense because they don't really have a consistent inline threat who can do who can go out and catch passes and block. They've got Barnage, who's a space tight end. They've got Randall Telfer, who's just a blocking tight end. And they've got Seth Evolve, who's a space player that, that's a rookie this year, who's interesting. But they don't have that guy that can do a little bit of everything. And if you're watching today, they're getting absolutely killed by Tyler Eifert, who is the ideal. And Hugh Jackson obviously had Eifert. Uh, he had Jermaine Gresham, and he had you know CJ uh, Moser, whatever his name is. Uh, he had all those true inline wide tight ends. I can't imagine he doesn't want that to be a part of his offense again, so that would make a lot of sense to me. So from that standpoint, those are the top four. I think they need to find a – what I think they want to do with their defensive line is I think they want to get another big uh, three technique that can uh, two-gap a little bit but can also rush the passer. Montrevious Adams and, and Julio Johnson uh, – stand out in that regard. Adams from Auburn, Johnson from Iowa, that are guys that are big. Now, how do you feel about a guy like Solomon Thomas, who obviously is sort of a tweener, undersized, athletic um, something? I mean, he's it's he's going to test well, assuming he declares. I mean, even though he's at Stanford and there's any number of reasons to stay at Stanford, his major True. communications. Uh, so I'm not sure how uh, serious his academic uh, efforts are there. Uh, so he may be ready to come out. I mean, he's he's impressive uh, production-wise. He looks productive athletic, athletically. And then, you know, the way he plays, he is always looking to take the fight to the opponent, get his hands on immediately and attack, um, which is great because – you know he's he's aggressive and he, he thrives on contact. And the thing you the thing you question with a guy like Thomas is is his ability to run the arc because you just don't see him do it. So it, it's sort of a question of where do you want to put him? Do you want to put him at an end at a five technique 
which, you know, in this scenario, he'd be sort of rotated with Nassib, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And then able to slide inside as a pass rusher, uh, you know, that, that would be, you know, his, his spot. I mean, I think um, he's going to go much earlier than that. Um, if he tests like he should, I could easily see him going to top 20 um, with everything he does. So, I mean, there's certainly value for a player like that. But if you, you know, if, if you're just going for talent, uh, Thomas is certainly in the conversation, even though he wouldn't necessarily start. Uh, he certainly play. But if you try to get sort of starters, I think uh, you're taking some of those other spots because, like, right now, their three technique who sometimes gets kicked out to a five is Jamie Meter. And that's not what uh, he is. He's just not. He's not, he's not super athletic. No, he's he's great as a two-gapping clogger. The best thing you can happen right. to him is that he gets to be a backup nose and maybe a backup three where he can rotate and just come in and clog. And he was great at that last year. This year when Des Bryant uh, went down with injury for the season, I think that really hurt them, and they didn't really have a good backup plan. So Meter sort of got pressed into the duty, and it's just not a good setup. Now, if they add Garrett, then they don't need that guy to play a five or shouldn't. They can just put Garrett on the, on the outside and, and get a three and sort of cover both those gaps, which would sort of help meter. But if they want to go with another five, then, then Thomas certainly uh, enters the equation. But I think it, it makes more sense to go Garrett as a, as a nine and then just add a three that can clog a little bit and try to keep things free, which is where you get to those guys like Montrevious Adams and Jaleel Johnson. Uh, they need uh, they need to uh, add corner, add safe, pre-safety in particular. I think they actually like their strong safeties. Um, and they can always use more running back help. I, I actually like Isaiah Crowell. I actually like Duke Johnson quite a bit. They just don't run them very much, um, which is frustrating with our quarterback situation that, that Hugh Jackson, who's been an, is a disgraceful play caller, uh, <laughs> is, you know, dropping back 30 and 40 times with these guys and, and quitting on the run before you start. Um, whether, you know, the, the best argue, argument you can make for him is that he's basically tanking the season, which doesn't seem like him. So if if, if that's not your theory, then you're basically saying he's incompetent. Uh, I, th- I think he's done a great job in terms of sort of overall message, like being the CEO. I think he's great at that. But as far as play calling, he's he's been awful. And, and for, you know, Ray Horton has taken a lot of criticism. Um, but for a de- defense with eight rookies on the depth chart, the defense has actually gotten better. Uh, and they've seen development. You see guys' growth and all these things that can that can be there. There's certainly – they need more talent. They need more help. But there's way more reason to be uh, happy with the defense than there is in the offense, and the offense had way, way, way more talent coming into the season. So that just sort of underlines how how sort of bad this has been. Quarterback's been a big problem. Cody Kessler can't play dead. RG3 is just awful. Uh, <laughs> and Josh McCown is the best of a, a very, very bad bunch. Um, they've got guys who could be a very nice receiving core if they keep prior, which they should, and that would they have to keep Jamie Collins. Uh, I'd like to see them keep Crowell. Then you've got Gary Barnage, uh, Corey Pullman, a couple other rookies this year. You have Jesus Ogbo with another sack. 
they've got guys, and, and a lot of people are very down on this team, but they just have so many young players. And not only did they get young players, but they added young players that were not that were sort of slow boil. And what I mean by that is they took some guys that are that are projects um, with super high upside that that weren't really likely to you know, hit the ground running. They were going to take some time. Now, Corey Coleman's a good example of that. And Corey Coleman also got hurt by being injured. He broke his hand early in the season. So he missed a lot of time, a lot of reps that he could have gotten out. But another guy that, that was a, a, a slow boil guy. And now he just picked up his fifth sack of the season. He's a guy I think they, they like, I think he, he's a great player for them to be stand backer next year. Um, who, who's just, freakishly athletic. I mean, you watch a guy who's that big when he gets going, it's, it's scary how fast and fit, how fast he can move with a guy that size. So, yep. you know, they've got other guys set the ball fits into this category, super athletic. Uh, but you know, you weren't going to expect him to come in right away. Ricardo Lewis in that same mold, super athletic, had no idea how to play wide receiver. Uh, so you've got all these guys that are really high upside, but but if you're expecting them to come in and just start dominating from the word go, your expectations were just completely out of whack. And then, you know, these people have criticized this, and, and the local media has been big on this. If you ask anyone, like, to name, you know, the rookies that are just dominating across the league, the only answer most people can come up with are two, which are Dak Prescott and Ezekiel Elliott, which is fine, but that's not typical. And if you ask them to come up with other names, they struggle. It's just very difficult to expect a ton of rookies to come in and be good, especially when they're playing with a bunch of other rookies next to them. Uh, so the season has gone basically yeah. as I expected it to go, um, with the exception that I thought the offense would be better uh, than it has been. So it's been sort of frustrating. And then, you know, this is always going to be um, – a question of, you know, the quarterback and, and this team's ultimately going to be judged on the quarterback and everything that gets there. So, you know, unless they find a guy who can play, um, I mean, I'd certainly like, uh, you know, a redo to get Derek Carr back. Uh, but they've got... <laughs> well, we'll, um, ask, we'll ask the general manager of the um, uh, Raiders, Jim Coburn, in a second what it might take to pry uh, Mr. Uh, Carr But But the, the, the other thing that might... The other thing I... I would not put out of the realm of possibility is if the Bengals, the, the uh, not the Bengals, if the if the Eagles lose like they're supposed to, let's go Redskins, pick it up. Don't be surprised if the Eagles finish way like a let's say fifth pick. Don't be surprised if the Browns try to trade down from that pick and pick up additional assets for for not only this year, but next year. They've already got one second round pick for 2018, but it would not be surprised at all if they just keep keep that gravy train going, especially if they don't love any of these quarterbacks or think that they'll be available later, that would not be out of the realm of possibility. Now, if they love one of the quarterbacks, get Garrett, get him, and and there you go. But I, I don't think it's – if they don't love them and, and they end up some, really valuing somebody like Luke Falk, if he, if he declares, I would not be surprised if they tra- trade down and, and as fans, media, and everybody else are wringing their hands – that they actually, it would actually be a smart play um, to to keep getting them more guys, especially if they like those DBs that that 
might be later in in, in the draft. Uh, one of the guys I, I I think is going to go way higher than most do if he declares. We'll see. Is a Dory Jackson. Uh, I've seen people have him as low as the third round. Uh, I, I'm watching <laughs> oh. him, and I'm watching Sidney Jones, and I'm if you think Sidney Jones, I, I think Sidney Jones is a terrific, terrific technician technician at corner, but if you watch Sidney Jones and you tell me he can go in the first round, I, you can't tell me that Dor- Dory Jackson can't go in the first round. Uh, Dory Jackson doesn't make it past the middle of the first if he declares, but every all indications that both he and Juju, I mean, it's sort of like a pact they've signed to each other or whatever that they went to a national championship together before they hit the pros. Now, mm. that may change. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we've heard this before. It has may change, but thus far, if you follow them on Instagram. Hey, Juju, join our nation. You want to meet Jay-Z? You think Jay-Z's cool? <laughs> uh, you want to meet J. Cole? We got J. Cole. Come on. Come on, Juju. Join the team. Be a superstar. Juju, Juju Schuster keeps insisting it's completely up to Adore to decide, so we'll see. Right, right. But, uh, I don't think they're saying. I'm just going to – I don't think they stand <laughs> I don't think but, so either. And as far as, like, that third-round stuff you just said, Pete, as soon as Dory Jackson goes to the combine and runs the fastest 40-yard dash at cornerback, that will yeah. change real quick. <laughs> well, he's not he, – he's good. Okay, so let's get into this. If you watch Sidney Jones and if you go, especially against USC – that's the game that should scare the crap out of you because he just right. gets manhandled. Uh, yes. It's not that he can't cover; he can cover really, really well. I think he actually he's he's terrific. If, if you see him drop into quarters or cover three, he he does a great job in terms of keeping his eyes, you know, keeping keeping his leverage right and and keeping his eyes where they're supposed to be. But when he mans up tight, Schuster and some of these other receivers just shove him out of the way, and he just. It, it's too much for him. So, and, and Adore Jackson has the same problem. He gets criticized for being undersized. I get it. Um, and his technique at times is downright bad. I mean, I, yes. I relate to, to Cam Irving at times, who's the embattled center for the Cleveland Browns, and that sometimes his, he's so high that his balance is so bad that, like, on that play where John Ross ran right by him, it, he was so high that when he tried yes. to step back, he fell backwards because he didn't have any balance. The problem is, if you stay with that USC-Washington game, Adore will get beat. Uh, there's no question <laughs> about that. But then right. he comes back and he'll get two picks. Uh, yep. He's a more uh, aggressive tackler. Uh, like uh, Sidney Jones will pick his spots when he thinks he can snipe in and get a play on the run. He'll do it, and he looks great doing it. He's got a great... Uh, great explosion in COD skills in that regard. But when he's blocked, he is content to just shut it down and watch watch the play. And uh, Whereas Adore is a guy who's going to fight more often. Now he'll miss some tackles. He'll make some ugly-looking uh, tackle attempts. But he's he's longer. He's longer, dude. I mean, they're both and then smallish, you add in, but Adore is clearly stronger. <laughs> well, is and then you add in the last the last part of the equation, which is the special teams. And, you know, <laughs> pick up right. being what they are, Gary Jackson is a guy who can get it done in punt. Uh, you know, I, I personally, I thought he was among a, a, a group of people who, who warranted at least going to New York for the Heisman. Uh, yeah, well, he's a two-time finalist for the Horning Award, you know. So yeah. That, 
should be noted. Yes, he's he's the guy who can contribute in multiple areas. You can, if you want to, you can put him into whatever package and on offense every now and again just to tweak out the other two. You can play. But I, I mean, what, that, that, I've actually heard. You know, Matt Miller is a guy who, who who's who's sort of. I think uh, test ballooning this, the idea that Dory Jackson should be a wide receiver, and I think that's um, crazy. I, I understand that he could do it. I don't doubt that he could be a receiver, but I These don't think These are sub-packages, people. Like, he's not special in that regard, where he had the ability to be a special, special corner. In, in, the, same way, in the same way that Deion Sanders could play wide receiver. Yeah. He can play wide receiver. But He's not ever going to be. He couldn't be a starter in the CFL full time. It's just at this point. People don't realize how hard it is. I don't think they quite get it. I mean, half off the Sam Seals, the guys who've done it, going in the other direction, Richard Sherman. I mean, the name, you don't make this of corners and wipes, but it's first that great success in it, I'll just, and I'll wait. Oh, yeah, and you're kind of breaking up a bit, Bill. Oh, I was saying it's passed off to guys like Richard Sherman and Sam Seals who've made the conversion from wide receiver to corners somewhat well this filling very successfully because Sam Seals fairly successfully. But I was saying give me the list of guys who've made the transition from college corner to successful wide receiver in the NFL and I'll wait. wait a very long I time. Think, as I was saying, I think people underestimate how difficult that would be to do. That's what I'm beginning to believe. Sure. I mean, I'm just getting tired of the whole, you know, like Richard Bill Peppers, because he does a package play on a sweep and gets a touchdown, that all of a sudden, hey, I think I like him better at running back now, as if sweep plays are only the only thing that running backs do. You know, in the NFL, so all your running backs do, then yes, you can. If that's your entire running attack, if that's your entire running attack, yes, you can do that. Well, yeah. that stuff, that stuff, it's just, it's fine. But they, it gets into a whole other discussion for me, which is the amount of prospects that are rated extremely highly based on theoretical production rather than actual production. Yep. Uh, you may call this the Miles Jack effect. Um, <laughs> yes, there we go, the Miles Jack. Uh, and, and you know, Jamal Adams may fall into this, although I like him quite a bit. I just wish he had more production. But the idea of – and this this generally comes from the, the trade scouting community, and I got nothing against them on, on the surface nope. – uh, but uh, you're talking about what guys might be able to do as far as opposed to what they can do. O.J. Howard's another one of these guys. You see, theoretically really good, but when you actually watch <laughs> yes. them, not very good. Um, uh, so it, it is. It is what it is. If they, if they want to play around with the what can be, I'm, that's fine. I'm more interested in what is. And to me, for all the talk of what he might be. I think Adore Jackson could be a fantastic corner in the NFL. And I think, I don't know if it's the first round. Uh, he might settle around the second round. 
but I do believe that he will test as good as as well as anyone because I don't think people remember why he was so highly rated coming out of high school <laughs> because he was such an athletic freak. And I, I do think that will make people take a, a second look, just like I think a guy like John, you know, just a guy like uh, Allen at Alabama, maybe a guy who doesn't test very well, and suddenly people are like, ooh, I don't know about that. And that doesn't mean Allen's a bad player. It just, just means uh, he's not that good. He might be, you know, a 10 to 15th or an 8 to 15th pick, which is great, but it's just the difference between being – you know, the guy and, and being a, a guy. So, I mean, we'll see how it goes, but there's a lot of these guys that, that I think are sort of getting misjudged based on on, on some of the whole, you know, dreaming well, of what can be. Yeah. People are saying he's a cross between Dominican Sue and J.J. Watt. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's fine if he, you know he loses. Which is fine if he suddenly if he measures in about four inches taller and ten pounds heavier. I've heard I, the, so, the most ridiculous I've seen was Richard Seymour. And that one, that was the one. That, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's like when Eric Armstrong is compared to Richard Seymour. You know. Um, yeah, six six three three hundred, uh, <laughs> as opposed to six. Two and change and two ninety or whatever he actually two eighty five or whatever. So we'll see. That's which is you know another reason that I think is ultimately going to make Gary go that much higher up. And I mean he's the top guy, but I think he's going to go that much higher as far as his team goes when he's actually measured and tested and all that. I think he's going to uh, blow people away, um, and and people are going to sort of forget about him. Although my dude Derek Barnett which I remember before the season, people were really not that high on. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? This dude's 19 and has 20 sacks already. He's really, really good. Um, <laughs> well, my worst, my worst nightmare. He doesn't have the traits, Pete. He doesn't have the traits, Pete. I mean, just watch the traits, you know? <laughs> my, uh, my worst fear, which may be getting alleviated partly today, was that the Bengals were going to end up with Derek Barnett. Uh, I did not want to see that happen. But of course, the Bengals have a very good habit of not drafting guys to terrify me. Passed on Malcolm Brown, passed on Tony Clark, passed on Derek Carr, Teddy Bridgewater, and now they're probably going to not end up with Derek Barnett. Barnett, yeah, I'm laughing to my in the same line, but uh, that might be enough to get Malcolm Sperger to call it quit. So Barnett might end up on the Raiders, though. You know, so there's that. Yeah, Derek Barnett on the Raiders. Their whole oh, McKenzie connection. You don't love, uh, they aren't in love with Bruce Irvin. <laughs> they paid Bruce Irvin a lot of money, but I, you know, he's not, he's not who they thought he, he was. What a surprise. He can only do one thing. He can do it kind of well, and he's a beneficiary of it. The other guy. Plus, they want the whole Seattle effect, you know? Like, yeah, let's be like the Seattle Seahawks defense. Yeah, let's – oh, Bruce Irvin's on the Seattle Seahawks. Let's get that guy. You know, Sean Smith, he would probably be on the Seattle Seahawks, you know, because of being tall and having long arms, but the inability to play a cornerback really well. But, you know, but there you go. You got that guy. 
of course, David Anderson, same difference. Ridiculously long arms, but very, 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 very stiff. Yeah, very, very long arms for his size, but very, very stiff. Xavier Rhodes-ish type of cornerback as an athlete. So, I'm curious. Uh, how do you guys feel about Leonard Fournette? Because I know where I'm at, and it's not good. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, I'm to torn. Me. Yeah. Go ahead, Bill. No, I was going to tell you to me, I've heard him compared to everybody from Adrian Peterson to, God, Dickerson. somebody. Well, I don't know if he would say Dickerson. Good God. Uh, <laughs> that would be someone who just had never seen Eric Dickerson. I'm just so, uh, he is 0% like Eric Dickerson. Uh, I mean, to his credit, he's a much tougher guy to some extent. I mean, Dickerson was capable of breaking tackles, don't get me wrong, but he was not a guy who relished contact, I think it would be fair to say, about about Dickerson. Um, and he's faster than people think. The guy ran a 10 7 meters while he was in high school. It, but well, here's not, the thing. But not here's Dickerson. Thing Come on, people. <laughs> I will not be surprised if Fournette runs obscenely fast in the 40. I still don't think he's that good. I, I, I should say, I still don't think he's uh, the, you know, the franchise elite back that some people make about. Well, like, it, depends, for example, it depends on your, it depends on your franchise. I think it'd be the best way to put it. If you have a say, franchise that's really built. Argument, let's say he flashes a, a four, three, eight. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you know what a four, three, eight, like four, four, eight, I could be happy, but let's say he does. Somebody will lose their minds and gas him early, right? Because that's well, what no, happens I mean, when a big back does that well. Does that change your opinion of him, or is he just still a straight line downhill running power back who has really, 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 really good blocking at LSU? Yeah, I mean he, that is what he is, and if you have the right kind of team, he can have success. Um, Here's what I will say. I mean, Jamal Lewis, though even bigger and even faster, was kind of the same guy. Jamal Lewis wasn't exactly shifty, for those who don't remember his NFL career, uh, which is why his career was the way it was. You know, had a very high peak and a very steep decline. He took every hot shot head on. He took them all. He took every shot. No fair dodges with your Jamal Lewis. Uh, he's on this. Jamal Lewis was a true that guy was a freak. But let's say he has Jamal Lewis. I mean, that's similarly, right? He runs into the expect, like you said, and he's, you know, matched in 231, 232, 230 something, right? And still in Then Jamal Lewis. So how do you feel about Jamal Lewis? I mean, if you get the time to take very early and build your offense around, if you have the right offense to build around, I mean, yeah, sure, why not? But most teams aren't that. Especially nowadays, most teams aren't that. Uh, those two teams are even close to 50 50 in terms of rush that. But one, if I remember something correctly, there's like one team that's even close to 50 rush that. And anybody else is, you know, 60, this is a Oh, you're kind of breaking up a bit. Oh. I was saying, since the teams are built to use a back. Yesterday. I mean, you think you can build a lot of 
Kaepernick overnight. 
because that's who he's become this season. Well, not necessarily. I mean, he's always – that's the one thing about Cam Newton. I really don't let all the Cam Newton people know. I, I do like you, Cam, but he's never been the most efficient passer at any I get, point I've gotten, of his I, career. This is my problem. I've always said he's not a consistent passer, and at least I don't know about now, but before the season, people would just jump into my mention, just moving, moving everything they've got, just unloading. And then you actually watch him this season, and he can't get the broadside of a barn. His mechanics are just awful. He's completing like 54% of his passes this year. It's just awful. And everybody keeps blaming his receivers. And at some point, like the longest time it was, again, Ted Ginn sucks, and he's their best receiver. And now it's like, hey, Ted Ginn's their best receiver. <laughs> well, as soon as Ted Ginn has to prove that the receiver, I've got to be you and I, and both got to be kind of clear. You know, with a tart run, you're going to stand forward, and you've got it now. I mean, that's, that is, shouldn't play back that in the first second stage. They still have a great team, <laughs> but, um, but you can't just chop it all up. You know, he's not exactly Aaron Rodgers in terms of working on the finest points. And, of course, Aaron Rodgers can get interesting mechanically, but he's, he's doing it on purpose. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's never been, you know, one of those guys that you would use as instructional tape for your eighth grader. Hey, watch how Cam does it. That's never been Cam's game. He's always been a, you know, basically a tremendous athlete who can get away with and has gotten away with things that you would never allow a quote-unquote normal quarterback to try to do. But it's caught up with him partially because the team isn't as good and partially because I, I wonder if he's 100% healthy. I'm just going to be blatantly honest. I don't think he's 100%. Uh, I don't know if it's, not. you know. Cam Newton. Right. 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 I mean, his ankle is never going to be the same, and I think people forget that. Like when he heard it, it was clear it was never going to be a hundred percent again, and everybody just assumed, oh, he's just going to be Cam Newton again, and he's never, at least to this point, he has not invested himself into fixing what needs to be fixed so he can have a transition to a second act because right now if his legs don't work he's not in the NFL he's not that call pepper he's going to be out of the league uh as soon you know whenever that happens he's going to be Dante Culpepper Donovan McNabb where the second his legs are done they just can't play anymore so he's got to decide it's imperative that he develops that second act where he can actually make consistent pros he can throw it 65 yards off his back foot and a real ooh and ah at it, but then he can't make a freaking 10-yard hitch. Right. And we all watched, I mean, this is, every, every time there's a quote-unquote great mobile quarterback, the, the debate reignites. It, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the debate was about Roger Staubach, all right? And then it was, uh, or similarly around that same time, I mean, Tarkington before that, and you know, Bobby Douglas, you know, as well in the 60s and early 70s, you know, well, well, they could just teach, hey, this kid can throw, you know, a ball through a barn door. And as his own coach said, if only I could teach him to hit a barn door. But you had... But here's the thing, debates, though, right? about Staubach and Tarkington. Both of those guys, for their era that they played, 
were extremely efficient quarterbacks. I mean, oh, yeah. sure, there was a the oh, whole oh, – sure, oh. they had the whole mobile side to their game, but they were – I mean, Roger Staubach led college football at one point in every statistical yep. category in terms of efficiency. Yes. He was And yeah. Tarkington never led, but he was at least, you know, high end at one point, you know, at Georgia. So, like, that's kind of the big difference. Uh, is all I'm trying yeah. to say is like you either are a mobile quarterback that's very efficient or you're a mobile quarterback that isn't very efficient, Lamar Jackson. <laughs> and then you have people who, you know, get into the whole debates about, well, he's going to learn to be more efficient when I don't necessarily think that's, that's the, you know, the case, you know what I'm saying? I, I just think, I mean, sure. There's well, definitely a case where that could change. That that's what's going to happen. I'll put it that way. You can't just chalk it up like, well, that, as I said, you can't. The assumption of development, the assumption of development, has killed the careers of more coaches and GMs than anything else. Exactly, and that's a big issue with Cam is that he's he's on a team that the the Panthers, as I said last year, like they went to the Super Bowl, but based on the talent they had on the team, I mean they were kind of a good bad team in that you had some of the best players in the NFL on the team in terms of, you know, like Luke Keekly and, you know, other guys like that. But then you also had Trey Boston and, you know, the tackles that they had. You know, like it's, it's, it's like a weird thing where, like, they have good players, Trey Turner, you know, on the interior line, who is playing next to this turnstile tackle. So, like, it's it's just, you know, it's bad. And, and – Sure, you can have one season where, like, everything goes right and you coach the heck out of that season and it goes well, but is that going to be long-term consistency? Can you keep that up for years and years and years? That was my biggest thing. I didn't think so. And so far this season, it's shown to bore that out, that you can't consistently, you know, you can't just – the way you're doing your things, you have to be – you know, the NFL is all about adaption. I mean, it's always been about – the teams that can adapt to the, the scenarios of different situations last the longest, and the Panthers aren't exactly built to adapt to situations as best as other teams. Right. And that's, like I said, I think people forget how difficult it is, there's no other way to put it, uh, to, to play certain positions in the NFL. It is really hard to play offensive tackle in the NFL. It's super hard to play corner in the NFL, especially nowadays because I don't know how guys play defensive back at all. The way that the game is now, uh, the rules are, are, are enforced in the way the game is now played, it's ridiculously difficult. And so you've got to really find guys who are not only great athletes, but great learners, right? Adapters. Because you've got to learn and adapt quickly to have any kind of success nowadays in the NFL. And I think that's what people forget, you know. And so when they talk about, well, you know, this guy's got this, you know, super high PFF score or whatever because nothing ever happens to him or whatever. So, I mean, the the whole non-production being production because no one ever throws his way or no one ever tries him, well – once again, I just go back to, hey, I watched Deion Sanders at Florida State. You well, know, yeah, but it's not just that. I mean, it, it's, I mean, sure, there's production, but th- there's another layer to that, which is, 
like, sure, you could have a guy who's really productive in the NFL or wasn't thrown out of time or had a really high really good burn rate, but, like, there's other variables at play there, you know? Like, you could just do a thing. That's, like, my biggest issue with PFF is a lot of times when they do college football rankings, they go, oh, well, this tackle at Arizona State has allowed the least amount of pressures, and then you just look at the competition he's played and then the players he's played. And you're like, well, no, right. no he hasn't given any pressure. He's played FCS-level players and, you know, these other kind of guys that are just kind of nobody. And then once he finally gets into a game, it's like Zach Boehner, right, at USC. They were going in that game going, oh, yeah, Zach Boehner has only allowed this many pressures, goes up against Alabama, and all of a sudden, you know, gives up all these pressures and sacks. So, like, it's there's more to it than just that. There's other variables and other elements to it as well that affects things. The only thing I would say about the Panthers, too, is, you know, Rivera has been very – his comments about data and metrics and stuff like that has been very anti-metrics and yes. anti-data. Yeah. Uh, in the sense of, like, you know, I, I don't – you know, I don't understand this. And yet his team – I think there's a little bit of double talk here where, like, he, he does that and yet he goes out and gets cornerbacks, you know, in terms of James Bradbury and uh, the West Virginia cornerback – who are the exact same athletes as Josh Norman. So, like, and mm-hmm. also in terms of physical characteristics, are the exact same thing. So I just found it kind of funny to me that you you have these coaches, or even Bill Belichick coming out and being like, oh, well, data and stuff, that's BS, that's nothing, you know. Like, I'll tell you what's data, seeing the quarterback go back and go through his progressions and getting, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And yet they're actually doing data stuff. They're actually doing data stuff. I mean, you have to. I mean, it's just happenstance that they're going out and getting the exact same type of athlete as Josh Norman, you know, or even Belichick in terms of all the stuff he does. But, yeah, the Panthers are just a mess. But I am i wouldn't be surprised if they took Leonard Fournette because hes that's their draft personality, you know. They like to get those types of guys, if you will, you know, in terms of getting their, their team that way. So, even though that's not very helpful, but you know, I, I just think that's kind of what they would do. My, but at least with Fournette, should just shift into that. I mean, my only issue with Fournette is, I do agree he plays on an offensive line in LSU that that is very good and and you know he gets stuff set up very well. My only issues with Fournette is basically about the amount of punishment he takes on his body, because yep, he it's my Jamal Lewis comment is very reckless when it comes to getting guys hitting his knees, getting guys hitting to certain areas taking punishment, and believe me, I, I do like running backs who take, you know, some, they have some feistiness, have some drive, have some fight and will and stuff like that. But he's just a guy that I worry that he'll either come into the league and will not be successful at all because of, like, what Pete said in terms of, you know, he'll go to a team that has a very bad offensive line and doesn't get much stuff, and then he just gets beat to a pulp for three years and then he's just a bust and he goes back to LSU and then he gets picked up by the Ravens and then it doesn't work out, you know, true Richard basically. Or he has like a three, four year run where he's really this really successful power back and yep. is, you know, mowing down, running over cornerbacks and safeties. Yep. And then slowly but surely he just has one season where he just takes a ton of hits. And it is just never the same guy again after that, um, which is like yeah. most right. running backs' careers. 
Sean Alexander, Jamal Lewis, right. I mean, there's a long list of dudes that their career arc is almost exactly what you just described. If you are a, you're an exceptional athlete at the running back position, but you either don't know or simply disdain avoiding hard, um, taking hard shots constantly. Yeah, I mean, because people get confused about durability. I don't want a guy who's had too many carries. I don't care about carries. But to quote the great, late, great John McKay, the ball's not that heavy and he's not in the union. Well, at least in college. Um, so the issue isn't carries. The issue is hits. You can take brutal, crazy hits as a part-time guy, you know, as a guy who only gets a certain number of touches, and you can be work done. You can be uh, Danell Pumphrey and get a huge amount of carries but know how to manage your body and not get, you know, the snot knocked out of you, you know. So this thought that if you're a small back with a lot of carries, you know, that's a bad thing. Hey, Tony Dorsett, you know, 189 pounds, played a very long time at a very high level at 189 pounds. And he could play now at that weight and would be a really good one. I mean, like, Tony Dorsett could play in any, any era you want. I, I saw him. He could play in any era. I mean, even a guy like, like Marcus Allen, who obviously, you know, had a part of his career where he didn't get a lot of touches because of reasons, as, as Jim likes to say. But in college, he certainly got his touches. He was 202 pounds and almost six foot three. But he knew how to not take shots head on. He played fullback before that. So he was a fullback at USC before Charles and then Charles White, you know, because of the Heisman Trophy winner. And then after blocking for a Heisman Trophy winner, he then becomes a Heisman Trophy winner when he gets all the touches and, of course, sets a whole bunch of records. I mean, his last year at USC is, I mean, you know this, Jim. It's like a metrical, <laughs> what, 2003? Something, some crazy number. Yards rushing. In an 11-game season. Well, I mean, he had like 57, 58% market share, which is like right. unheard of nowadays it's, against it's, a it's really K2. It's tough. It's Kilimanjaro. It's, yeah. <laughs> against one of the toughest schedules, you know, in the last yep. 60 years. So, like. He played a lot of good football teams. Actually, one of the toughest schedules ever in college football. Ever. So, you are correct. Like, they played an amazing <laughs> number of really good football teams. Exactly. So, like, there, there's stuff like that. But I really don't know. I mean, my only issue with Leonard Fournette, the only other issue with Leonard Fournette is just that there's so many running backs in this class now that I hate to be that guy, but I'm just saying, like, you know, you got Leonard Fournette, you got Dante Foreman who gives you similar stuff um, in terms of, like, a big power back uh, or space back. Foreman's more like a space back, actually, but – um, but, you know, stuff like that. Like, there's so many running backs in this class now. Um, Jerry McNichols just declared, too, from Boise State. Yep. Um, that are maybe not the same physical stuff as Fournette, but, like, you know, I don't know. I mean, the only thing that Fournette has going for him is that he was such a highly talented guy out of high school. As we all know, he's being compared to AP out of high school. Uh, he goes LSU, has a really – big season last year you know this year is kind of you know had some injuries and stuff for obvious reasons uh and of course Darius guys kind of came on and did his thing but 
I just don't know. I mean, I just know that the NFL typically that their vision of a running back is Leonard Fournette, which makes you think he's probably going to be the top back chosen because he fits <laughs> that idea in their head of like what a running back is supposed to look like. But at the same time, I've been leaning more towards like Christian McCaffrey as a top back, but I know I get flack for it. But like just just by the sheer fact of like this is a guy who's really young, this is a guy that doesn't take a ton of punishment. He knows how to keep his body fresh. He only missed one game this year, but that was it, you know, in terms of missing games. And he actually ended up having a a somewhat better year statistically than he did last year um, in terms of just percentages. So, like, I don't know. I mean, there's so many backs, it's hard to debate. But I do – I don't fault you for taking one of them. I just think there's a lot of risks. Uh, in terms of uh, longevity, which most coaches don't care about, as you know, Bill. I mean, coaches only care about what can he do when he comes in immediately. I think Fournette can come in immediately and, and contribute on a team, uh, on the right team. But I definitely don't know if taking him top ten is the right move, I sure. guess, when it comes to Right, right. I mean, I like him better than, than a guy like Jeremy Hill. Now, Jeremy Hill wasn't a guy that you took in the top ten either. But... <clears throat> You have to put him in a situation where the things that he does well actually benefit your team at a fairly high level. And like I said, I think there's only a couple of teams even really built that way, right? I mean, if he went to the Vikings, who also need help on that offensive line, uh, sort of a refrain to keep hearing, and they wanted to sort of build. Now, he's not Adrian Peterson. He, he doesn't have Adrian Peterson's moves, and he doesn't have that second-level acceleration Though he's fast, he's faster than people right. think. But he'd be he's a not... better version of like Asiata, you know. Yeah, he'd be of... much better than Asiata. Because they seem to really <laughs> yeah. like Asiata for reasons that are kind of like, yeah, he's a power back, but you know, I got this Jarrett McKinnon, you know, just right, kind of right. I mean, on the sideline. <laughs> well, I mean, if, <laughs> if, you're, if right. you love, say, Robert Kelly, the guy that's now Washington's number one running back. Um, who replaced a similar guy in Matt Jones, only without all the fumbling. If you like that and you want a better version of that, he's a better version of that. I mean, Fournette gives you all the things those guys give you and some extra stuff. But like I said, if somebody got him the right situation, like I said, Denver seems like to me almost the, the closest to an ideal situation, a team that really wants to run the football, isn't thoroughly satisfied with their their running back group and yeah. I'm convinced we'll we'll add a running back at some point and they can I think they can afford well yeah they can yeah I mean they they have enough things that are still good on their team that they can probably I mean the term luxury pick, I don't know. That's not a term I really like most of the time. It's not really a luxury pick because in the sense of, like, if you can't get a quarterback, why not get a running back, you know? Because, like, they don't have a quarterback at Denver Bill, or at least they think they think they do. But, like, uh, this whole Trevor Simeon thing and, you know, <laughs> even Paxton Lynch, who's going to take some time to really develop and get into the group right. of things. They need, they need what Joe Flacco had in terms of a – a Ray Rice or, a, you know, just some yep. something that can be the main They need someone to carry the load. Exactly. Carry the load. I'm going exactly. to give you about 28 touches every game. <laughs> I need to know that you're okay with that. Exactly. And, 
you know, the defense, I mean, Denver's defense is, is still good. It's still a good defense. Um, it's not as good as it was last year. That's because a lot of guys left. Uh, and they also made some poor business decisions. But um, in terms of letting certain guys go and keeping other guys. But, like, I mean, they could just turn their, de- you know, turn their whole thing into, like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to become a running offense with defense and have Paxton Lynch be like Joe Flacco where he'll make a play every now and again, like do that sort of model, um, which is what some teams do. Some teams can't do it very well, though, I'll say that much. Like if it doesn't work the first year, usually you're fired. But um, huh. I don't think they'll fire John Elway that quickly. But uh, I'm just saying, usually teams, that, fired usually, Maybe teams ever, that that approach, usually teams that do that approach typically have some – you know, there's chirping. There's like, man, the offense doesn't put any points up and, you know, stuff like that. Um, we're losing games, you know, like all that kind of stuff. But, like, they're a team that definitely would benefit from having a running back like that. The Vikings wouldn't do it because they don't have a first-round pick, you know. I mean, they – Oh, they're right, yes. They'd have to trade back to traded the that bottom. Sam Bradford. The first, right. So, and they're right, joined at the hip right. of Sam Bradford, and they're going to try to get offensive <laughs> tackle in a weak class with Sam Bradford. So, like, they got right. lots of, on top of Mike Zimmer, who I, I really do like Mike Zimmer, but there's something off about him, man. I don't know. Ever since he was hired there, I, I just always got a, I don't know, not bad vibes, but I was like, I don't know if this is going to end well in terms of him, but, I, you know. Well, I'm, I'm not comparing him to Greg Schiano because I think he's a better coach than Greg Schiano. But he's got some Shiano-ish tendencies in terms of not just that he's a great defensive backs coach turned head coach, but he is—he's a guy with a little bit of the chaps, you know what, I, to him like Shiano had. Uh, I think he's a little more likable though. I think he, his team relates to him better than Shiano's team related to him. I think those are the primary differences. Is a more likable version of Greg Schiano, but he's got some Schiano to him. Yeah, he's a, you know, no-nonsense truth-teller of a coach uh, who doesn't sugarcoat anything, and, you know, yeah, he can say some stuff to people that they may not take well. I'm just saying he's he's a tough guy. He definitely yes. knows what he's doing in terms of defense. Yeah. But there's also a sense of, like, maybe he's a little in over his head to a certain extent, against certain coaches, I guess, you know, like, right. That's, that's all I mean in terms of, but you know, everybody can't be Bill Belichick or Andy Reid. Nope. I get that, but nope. you know, there's certain coaches you're going to go up against where if he wins, it's because of the Billy's and the Joe's versus the X's and the O's, you know? Well, that's, of, let's be honest though, Jim, that's true of, I would say half the coaches in the league. Sure. Are dependent upon their players outplaying the other team's players as opposed to them out scheming the other coaches' team. Yeah, I get that. But I just always had the feeling like if you're going to win with a coach, you need to have a coach that at least has a certain extra bit of, you know, a little bit of something extra. You know, I don't know what I'm saying. But I'm just saying, like, he's, I mean, sure, he's a tough coach. He, he knows you know, and all that kind of stuff. I just have misgivings about, and also the general manager too, because they do a lot of Falcon-ish things with their um, talent. 
stuff. Just, you know, <laughs> yeah, just in terms of like how they evaluate talent and how they get talent and how right. they get so saying it's just a funny thing you hear you say it that way. Stuff like that. Or Dimitrofish, you know, it's kind of the best better way to stand. But yeah. Well, here's what I will say and, and obviously Jim, you're in a great situation in Oakland. You have a team that the nucleus of it is young. Uh, you Not that there aren't some places that need work, but the nucleus of your team is young. You have some legitimate top five to ten type players at their positions at two or three spots. That's a great thing. And they're, most of your best players are in their primes, athletically speaking. That's a good thing. When I look at Pittsburgh, I see a team that's getting old at some key positions. Uh, that has attempted to reload on the fly with less than great success. Uh, they have a lot of what I call wallpapering over dry rot in certain places. Uh, and they've managed to keep getting away with it. And by that, I mean at least making the playoffs. No, they don't. Well, I mean, <laughs> this, no, year don't. Might, this year it might finally you know, catch up, really catch up with them. But that might be a good thing in that I Seven hope it forces – Kevin Colbert has lost his fastball, and Mike Tomlin is one of the most overrated coaches in football. Enjoy. Well, two, let me say two things. Mike Tomlin is a coach who is probably above average. In fact, not he's definitely above average. He's an above average coach. Is he, is he one of the best coaches in the league? I would say no. But is he a coach who's above average? I would say he's solidly above average. I am with you on Colbert, though. I'm 100% with you on Kevin Colbert. I don't know what happened there. Is Tomlin a better coach than Marvin Lewis? Huh, that's an interesting question. (laughs) I mean, is Tomlin a better coach than Marvin Lewis? I'm going to say yes, but it's it's closer than people would guess. I'm going to say yes, but it's closer than people would probably think that would be. I think it's close, though. But I'll give the edge there to Tomlin, yes. Is he a better coach than John Harbaugh? No, he is not. See, I'd put him at best third in just this division. And if he doesn't have, (laughs) if he does not have Ben Roethlisberger, he's fired. His defense is an abomination. I it's not, agree a thousand it's percent. Put, but I, I think that's more. I think it's more talent than scheme, though. Quite frankly, I think that team. But they don't know has what real doing. talent issues. Well, that too. They don't know how to get talent. They don't know what they're doing scheme wise. They don't know how to get the talent to fit the scheme that they want to do. Also correct. On yeah. offense, it's the only reason why. And I do agree with with Pete in the sense of like the only reason why they are anything is because they have Ben Roethlisberger and they kept Antonio Brown around. You know, like. Um, but Ben Roethlisberger is starting to get older and like. Once that's gone, what's left, you have probably one of the worst constructed defenses in the NFL with an offense. The the Steelers have four elite players. They have four elite players, and they are a garbage football team. That tells you everything you need to know about them. They have Ben Roethlisberger, an elite quarterback. They have Antonio Brown, he's an elite wide receiver. They have Le'Veon Bell, who's an elite running back. And they have Cam Hayward, who's an elite defensive lineman. And they are awful. That's that's an absolute disgrace. 
And I don't doubt that Kevin Colbert is a big problem here. The problem I have is whatever happened from the transition of Mike Tomlin uh, from from uh, from uh, Cower, who was overrated, it, yeah. whatever happened from there to there does not work with what they have in the front office. It does not make yep. any sense. And I think a lot of that is Tomlin's fault because he just decided to basically uh, sort of half change the scheme to something that yep. he wants to do, which doesn't make it's a lot half, of sense. It's half that. Tampa 2, half Steeler, you know, what they have left over from LeBeau, and I agree, it doesn't work. You've got to be one thing or the other. This, so, people use the term hybrid. Kevin We're Colbert, a hybrid defense, but, you know, you got to have Kevin, something that is your main thing. So, Kevin Colbert, you know, he's a legend because he was basically playing – playing a different game in the nineties when he was drafting guys that would go in the first round now in the fourth round, because guys just didn't do it that way. Now they have no perceived advantage and they're picking players that just aren't very good. Now, granted, they have some guys uh, that could be quite good. I really like Javon Hargrave. Stefan to has gotten better. Although again, it just makes no goddamn sense to have to Hayward Hargrave, and then to put, Ryan Shazier behind that group. It just doesn't like it yeah. just doesn't compute. So right. Sean Davis is interesting. Artie Burns is may make it better, but right now he's the human torch. Uh and they've got very little else and their best pass rusher, who's not Cam Hayward, is James Harrison. And I don't know how much of James Harrison is man and how much is just pure PEDs at this point. <laughs> but he's not sustainable to no. do any of this. So, I mean, like I said, if Roethlisberger goes down or retires or whatever, Mike Tomlin is done. They have no chance to fix that, and he'll probably get another job. But he he is such the benefit. He is such the Barry Switzer uh, on a long-term deal to this setup, and it just does not make any sense. And you watch him on game day, and, and he seems to be the guy who can rally the troops. But from an X and O standpoint, he's just not very good or the, the big game decisions that have to be made. He, too often, he's sort of got that Andy Reid, uh, bad clock management, bad late game decision, bad just things that don't make any sense. And I don't care about the two-point conversion. I mean, that's, you know, that's fine. But just too many things that just don't make any sense right so uh, 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 when you get down to the brass tacks it's a very motivational guy who doesn't know anything about football well i would disagree he doesn't know anything about football what i would agree is that there is a serious disconnect between what this team really is and what the team thinks it is both internally and externally there's a serious disconnect between how the team is being constructed and how it's being utilized and I think he basically is a very poor man's Tony Dungy, basically, uh, without, you know, some of the sort of calming presence things that help to make Dungy so great. But he's basically a guy who has Dungy's approach to football, right? He grew up under Dungy in a lot of ways, admired, clearly admired Dungy's approach. But that Dungy defense that they built slowly – but extremely well over a, a several-year period in Tampa that became one of the great defenses of 
the last 50 years was constructed very different. Well, parts of it were constructed very differently from this team, but parts of it were constructed like this team. And, and then the rest of it, yeah, it's a weird mishmash of what, what this team used to be, the old Blitzburg version of, of Pittsburgh's defense with the more Tampa Bay approach that clearly is more what Coach Tomlin's used to and likes. And that's essentially what led to the eventual ouster of um, Dick LeBeau was the clash between the two of them about how to play defense. So, you know, there's a, a problem. And at some point it must be fixed. You know, they've got to reconstruct, re-whatever. I mean, because they, they can't just paper over the dry rot anymore. They, this is a team in serious need of a, a gut rehab at a bunch of different spots. And I won't be shocked if the team still manages to claw its way into the playoffs somehow. They seem to somehow miracle away into the playoffs. They won't stay very long, but, you know, but I almost wish they wouldn't. I mean, I think that the managing them go 10 and 6, 11 and 5, that kind of thing has, has really kept people from realizing how serious these structural issues really are on the team. As, so that's the my I mean, issue, Bill, right? as soon as Ben Roethlisberger has some kind of an injury that would sideline him for an entire year, I would not be surprised if you guys are 3-13. Oh, if season. that. If that. They got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say this. They – this team will claw its way to probably more than three wins just because but I don't want to say pride itself because that sounds silly, but they, they find ways sometimes to win games or teams find ways to lose games to them, however you want to think of it, that they probably shouldn't. I mean, we saw, you know, the Michael Vick and some other games where they were just, as you said, awful, yes, but they managed somehow to not lose. You know, however you want to put that, they had more points than the other team at the end. I don't suggest that they would. I mean, obviously they would be bad. Six and ten, five and eleven. I could. I don't know about three and thirteen, but they'd be bad. Uh, heck, a long-term injury to a. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm from, well, I, I'm assuming they're going to make an upgrade at that. Well, I shouldn't assume anything, but. Oh I, yeah. Who's it going to be? Well, I mean, either they'll pick up, you know, yet another veteran retread, you know, or. Or they'll draft at the position. But I can't imagine they can look at their current situation and think, oh, yeah, we're set at backup. I mean, I can't imagine that would be – I mean, I guess it could happen, but I can't imagine why or how you would make that decision. That, oh, we don't need to do anything else. We're, we're, we're good. So we're solid. We would be... call, who are they going to call, Byron Leftwich or Michael Vick? <laughs> well, given those choices, it, I mean – why, what, what's wrong with Charlie Batch? Is that, that's how we're going to go. Josh McCown. <laughs> now, that's yeah. actually a really good option. I feel great about that. That means, like, yeah, 6 and 10, 7 and 9, if we had to go to oh, war with uh, Or Bruce Gradkowski, you know. Well, yeah, not so much guy. with Bruce. <laughs> I think <laughs> your new guy, you know what your new guy might be? Matt McGloin. Oh! Hey, Matt McGloin. <laughs> The Raiders don't oh, seem to I like them. I can I smell the moxie from, from here. So if you're telling me that that team is going to win more than three games, I got news for you. Because your offensive <laughs> line can't pass protect either, and that's another thing. Ben Roethlisberger, what he does 
within that offense is ridiculous. And yes, if, if there's a such thing as a war for football, he'd be close to the top. Uh, <laughs> he'd be in the top three or four, I would imagine, every, every, the last six or seven years probably. So, I mean, it, it's basically he is to the Steelers what Russell Wilson is to the Seahawks. You yep. take either one off that team, it's over. <laughs> so <laughs> hold on a second here, Pete. The 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 Steelers have an all pro guard in David DeCastro. What do you mean by he is very uh, good? I, 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 he's he's very good, and I really like Cody Wallace, who's a backup for some reason. But their tackles are the Army oh. guys. Who because should be a swing tackle. He'd be a, he'd be a he'll be an excellent swing tackle. Yeah, uh, I well, really, I like going away, but as a sw- as a as a high level bad. swing tackle. But they've got the ultimate bad swing tackle behind him. Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I, think think is that I would like going away, but as a swing mm-hmm. tackle, I think he'd be a very good swing tackle. Mike remembers him. But yeah, no, that, you're, I agree. The tackle situation is tragic. Uh, I could not be more. But agreed. isn't their approach to tackle like the Raiders' approach to tackle, which is we just get rid of the ball so quick that you know we'll just we'll just hit well, the yellow button at tackle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the Raiders, the Raiders, and the uh, Steelers have the same philosophy, and that their tackles are well, still in a way, but. Long in this way, but he's not as fat as a, as a prototype. Uh, and and it, they get these guys who are so goddamn wide that it just takes long enough for guys to go around them that they can do what they need to do with with the offense and with Roethlisberger. That may be holding on to the ball twenty minutes off all his offensive linemen hold, but that's sort of the same concept. It's going to take so long to circumnavigate the, the tackle to uh, get get to him. They don't. If you're going to beat the Steelers, it's, it's not going to be, you know, through gaps. It's always go around. They're always going to settle inside and make you run around. Them. And it, when you've got the when you've got the whale back there, you're more than good to do it that way. As long as guys aren't near his feet, it's going to be all right. Uh, but uh, that's the other problem. Is, and with Roethlisberger, one of the things he does the best is that little quick pass where he's got the ball out of his hands. You know, almost more than anything, and if that's you know anyone else, I don't see how they can run that stuff. So, yeah, the, 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 if it, let's put it this way: if the Steelers are not proactive with fixing this, I look forward to a nice, steady '80s style Bubby Brister era. And I, for one, look forward to this and embrace it <laughs> Merrill Hodge yeah. can come be a factor back. All those good, all the good times. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, I, yeah. Like I said, there. As I stated, there are serious structural issues that have been largely, I don't want to say ignored, but greatly de-emphasized because they've managed to get away with a lot of things. That yes, I mean, Rothenberg is a great part of it. They've managed to pull off some things and skirt some issues, but it just can't go on. I mean, it's not sustainable. That's a thousand percent correct that it, it will at some point, maybe even sooner rather than later, all come tumbling down. I'm just saying that every year we kind of predict 
that it's, this is the year that the collapse happens, and somehow they keep putting it off. Now, if, at some point, the bill will come due. I agree. But they've managed somehow to push it out longer I, than I thought. I thought a couple of years ago they would have had a total collapse. I stopped predicting their downfall because Roethlisberger is a vampire, and as long as he's gone, it doesn't matter. They they can be awful. They get worse every year, and he still keeps them afloat. That is, the the boat is taking on water, missing entire sections of the deck, and he literally just picks up the boat and pulls it out of the water by himself. So that's where your team is at, and I look forward yes. to. <laughs> Well, I agree. A couple of really good draft classes are very much in need, and I don't, I don't hold out a lot but of hope that that's coming necessarily. There actually is that, exactly. That's all you have is hope because optimism is based on, you know, facts of the past. Well, <laughs> the draft classes as I said, great. I already at some point the, first round. the bill should come due. Oh, come on! Don't rub it in. Yeah. I'm just, <laughs> just saying, man. Uh, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, that was that was not a good day for me, Jim. In case you were wondering, and I thought he was like, going to be a raider, you know, because he had a great yeah. story. You know, he like, drafted the wrong <laughs> Miami corner. <laughs> uh, and a round too early, even for the good one. No offense to Cornelder, who. I really like, but I think I'm think I'm more of like a second rounder. But <sighs> uh, yeah, well, so on a happier note, uh, before we wrap, I guess we should. Well, before I forget, Pete, what are you up to? What what new stuff have you been doing since last we spoke? Uh, I keep writing about the Browns at NFL Spin Zone and trying to fix it. Uh, okay. I'm I'll keep doing the player interviews I, uh, when it gets to draft time. Uh, I'm, you know, waiting for my credential for the Senior Bowl, so I hope to be able to do that. Uh, most of my work, I mean, other than basically trying to get throughout the season, is trying to figure out, based on what the Browns did last year, what they will do this year. Uh, because if they hold to the trends, it shouldn't be that difficult to figure it out. But uh, other than quarterback, but we'll see. Right. And, of course, Jim, you keep dropping little gym nuggets of what you've been doing as part of your sort of giant omnibus project. Uh, what what can people expect, and what are, what are you working on now? I'm working on safety uh, production, age, and strength of schedule stuff. As you said, I've already dropped running back, wide receiver, quarterback, tight end, edge rusher, defensive tackle, linebacker, cornerback stuff has already been kind of dropped on my uh, stuff. I haven't done articles on them yet. That's the biggest thing with me, man. I mean, it's not that I don't like to do articles. It's that research stuff takes so long to do that it just – it's like I want to get this stuff done before I start writing actual articles and stuff because it's so much stuff to do. But once I get all that stuff done, I'll definitely be doing a lot more articles on what exactly, you know, how the numbers are achieved. Anybody can do this. So that's the thing, too. This is everybody out there. Anybody out there can do what I do. 
uh, you just have to, you know, put the time and, you know, and, and do the work, if you will, to do it. So um, it's not like this complex sort of equation and all these algorithms and stuff that's like, you know, out of your mind. Like I have to spend 20 minutes explaining to you what I'm doing. It's just a matter of very simple things that are repeated over and over again uh, thousands of times. <laughs> to actually get you some things that, that show what makes us a successful NFL player. But, yeah, so, like, safeties is going to be my next thing. I'm probably going to either get that done either tonight or tomorrow, probably tomorrow, um, and then that will be done, and then I'll actually start doing some articles. As Pete said, too, I'm waiting on my waiting on my credential for the Senior Bowl as well, and I'm most likely going to be going there, too, because I live an hour away from Mobile right now. So... There's, like, no excuses, really, for me not to go. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to be doing that. And also doing some Senior Bowl uh, stuff as well, like articles on prospects uh, before the Senior Bowl kind of stuff, I guess. I'm doing a couple articles on that. But right now I'm just doing the whole data stuff thing, man. Um, and that's really about it. Uh, obviously, at once I, again, like I said, once I get done with the safety stuff, actually getting into actual articles about the stuff and explaining what it means, all that kind of stuff. And also keep in mind people that these aren't my rankings because I've had a lot of people who uh, looked at the stuff and were like, Oh, so you don't like this guy now, you know, (laughs) you don't like this guy now, huh? And I'm like, no, I, it's, this is data, you know, like this is the, this is the way the, the rankings are based on data, but, there's other variables that I haven't even gotten into yet in terms of athletic data and physical characteristics. And like, there's so much other stuff. It's very busy, obviously. So, um, but I'm just getting the basic stuff done in terms of uh, production stuff and age stuff and um, SOS stuff. So, but yeah, so they're not my rankings. They're just what the data says. So, uh, you know, and you could draw your own conclusions from it. I mean, uh, the, the only reason why I, presented it as the incoming rookies versus successful outcomes is because I don't think I should post 1,600, you know, players all on Twitter. I think that's a little too much. I think it's already kind of like drinking from a fire hose already. But at the very least, you know, (laughs) at the very least posting four pictures of the incoming rookies with the successful players I think is enough to give you a little taste to show you a little bit of, you know, at least a part of what data and metrics is, if you will. And another thing with Pete and the Browns is for some reason, the Browns are doing very similar things to me, at least in terms of the decisions that they've made and the players that they've drafted have been eerily similar to what (laughs) I've been doing. So I don't know if they're doing exactly what I'm doing, but they obviously are doing something close to what I'm doing. So it's, it's um, definitely not exact because I doubt you would have had. I'm gonna guess you wouldn't have picked somebody like. Well, you wouldn't have picked. Let's put it this way: you wouldn't have picked Spencer Drango. I mean, <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, back up level athlete. No, and that's one of those. That's one of those you talked about PFF earlier and how they grade and how it doesn't make sense. And he's like the prime example. And it's not because of anything he did. It's purely because of the way that offense works and the ball's out of the dude's hand in about a second. Right. 
so he graded right. out the greatest left tackle of all time, which the Brown <laughs> radio network loves to utilize and uh, suggest that he's going to become the great left tackle heir apparent to Joe Thomas based on that. Uh, and, and Carl Nassib probably wouldn't have been the pick. But in general, there's no question that they value production, they value market share, and they value explosion at least. So even though they're not um, word for word, um, there's no question that if you're if you're paying attention to what Jim does um, and you're a Browns fan, you can take a ton out of it in terms of yeah, identifying. A, if, you, if you're a Browns fan and you aren't following Jim, what the heck are you doing? Because <laughs> if there's anybody that's as helpful as figuring out some of the things that they're probably doing, I can't imagine who else out there is probably better suited to giving you some of that stuff than Jim would be. Because and the big, the big, the big question with that is going to be based on the work he's doing with quarterbacks. There seems to be at least some correlation there too. Um, that 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 may be at least. Uh, a way to at least narrow down the field of quarterbacks that they may be looking at. And I'm certainly looking at that as I've talked to Jim about. Uh, and that, again, it may not be, you know, 100%, but, uh, I mean, it, it's because of the amount of math involved, it's certainly not 100%. But the fact that it's even on the right path um, is certainly a credit to what he's trying to do. Right. And, you know, this is the, you know, the next great, uh, well, I mean, it's already happened to some extent, but I think people, in, the embrace of it is probably the next great frontier uh, because it's been around for a while. Obviously, we talked about going back even to, you know, what the Cowboys attempted, you know, 40-plus years ago, though it was obviously yeah. a mess because, you know, when you're well, trying to figure out something. they're not doing what I'm doing, you know. Right. Um, and they're right. also not there's there's limits to what I'm doing because again it's about figuring out the variables and narrow things down and then figuring out what the variables like what's what is what does this guy and this guy have in common versus this guy uh and it's like a never ending thing but like you're gonna find new variables like that's the biggest part of it anyways um which which again I got nothing against Justin Muscata I like force players I like what it does but if you added production to that variable and you added physical characteristics that variable, he wouldn't be just having 60% success rate. He'd be having like 80, 90% success rate right. in terms of what he has. Which right is what now. you want if so, you're betting your job. Exactly. <laughs> if you're betting your job on a data set or whatever. Will my, you will want. my daughter get to finish the season with her volleyball team? That's how to Exactly. If, if you're doing that, you want a better success rate. And that's really all it is, is, is to just tell people like, yeah, it's not, it's not like pinpoint accurate, like type all these numbers in and then boom, all the great players are right there. But it at least gives you the spectrum of, okay, all the great players were in this area. And then you, from there, you go to, okay, what other variables could I test? What other variables? So it's it's pretty simple, man. I mean, it's like anything else. It's like the scientific, scientific method. It's anything else, man. Like, it's what it's what traits are, you know. You, you see a guy has a trait. You want to see if other players have the same trait. And, and what I do, the traits are just things that you don't care about. But there's stuff that I care about. You know, production is a trait. 
you know, height is a trait, arm length is a trait. Like all these things are traits. It's just people don't think about it like that because they just think traits are just basically film traits. Um, so, you know, the whole idea of traits is already there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's just that people don't um, don't think about it from the sense of, of traits being uh, what these other things are. So, right. Um, to me, route running is a trait. Route recognition is a trait. I don't yeah, want people don't guys like who don't <laughs> who that, don't do these things a, at a high great. level. At least not early in the draft. You know, what what does it matter how long guys' arms are if he can't figure out what routes are likely to come at him in certain bounds and distances and based on that, react appropriately. <laughs> you know, I, you're gonna you know, you, you know, pure physical ability by itself can carry you, hey, I mean, there's guys who've made it a couple of years in the NFL who just were playing on pure physical ability. But there's nobody at any position who's had long-term success just based on their physical ability. Nobody has. No, which is, you know, what the data also says um, about that stuff. It just gives you an idea of, you know, if you wanted Ezekiel Anza, there's nothing wrong with Ezekiel Anza. It's just if you think that Ezekiel like Anza is, is going to become a Hall of Fame edge rusher, I'd say that's very unlikely, you know, in terms of the right. data well, stuff. So. <laughs> it's very unlikely because of data stuff. And he had never seen football through his age 20. I mean, those two things <laughs> there's stuff probably like that are related to each other. But, <laughs> but I do think that they're – that the draft, the draft in general, um, you know, again, a lot of what we're doing is projecting, uh, you know, as always, like, oh, we're projecting. And I don't see that there's anything wrong with, with, with adding stuff to that to help you project guys or, or what the potential, like, what is the actual potential? Because everybody talks about potential, but they talk about it in a vacuum. Like this guy could be so good. This guy could be the greatest of all time when, this actually tells you what it took to be the greatest of all time. You know, it gives you like a sense of, okay, the greatest of all time were productive. They were really athletic. They had these physical characteristics. So like from that sense, I don't think that there's anything wrong with something to help you learn about what it takes to be the greatest. Um, And I just think it's funny that we have such a, as you said, but which I always find is funny is there's so many young guys on draft Twitter who treat metrics as like a 60-year-old, you know, what the <laughs> 60-year-old guy. You like, know, wait a second like, now. You're not, you're not some dried-up old fart who's come off the road after 40 years of area scouting. You know, you're, you're 15. You should be embracing this. Exactly. So I, I always find that funny when there's like a 20-year-old that, you know, talks about production as if he's like a 65-year-old veteran scout you know, type of guy. I always find that kind of funny. Yeah, that's, I agree. That's one of the things that's always amused me is, uh, hey, not everybody's going to warm up to some of these things. It's just funny to me when it's, when it's some of the younger guys who, who reject it. You would think they'd be, hey, you're, you know, you're making gifts. You're doing all this sort of forward thinking, technological stuff. You should, well, whatever. Hey, We'll see. And maybe it's just the work involved, maybe, that keeps them from being maybe attracted to some of stuff. But I, but I always say, too, that 
you know, as, as much as there's people who doubt metrics, I always kind of take it from this perspective of, like, if you just gave me, you know, 30 minutes or 10 minutes even to just tell you what it is and, and what it says, that you would easily come away from it going, well, there's something, you know, there's some value there, you know. Right. Well, versus, most of the people who at least take a look usually at some point come away saying that. It's only the ones who sort of reject it and say, well, I'm just going to watch tape, <laughs> who don't at least start to embrace it to some extent. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically what I've been doing. This has obviously been a, a culmination of years of stuff. Like I told most of you, I didn't just start doing this overnight. I've been doing this consistently for the last three to four years. So um, this year it's even better, obviously, because of the strength of schedule stuff added and all these other sort of stuff. So, you know, I'm just saying, like, this is going to be my best stuff um, this year, especially. So I'm just saying people watch out you know, for that stuff, so. Right. Exactly. And that's, like I said, that's that's what I'm I'm warming up to myself. I was a, I mean, I started out as a traits, just watch the tape guy, which I guess probably everybody starts out that, or most people start out, out that way. And I used to look at statistics. I didn't know what they really meant, but if a guy, but I, when I saw Marcus Allen and then I saw the numbers, I was like, okay. No one's ever done this before. This guy's good. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you treat it that way, you just don't understand the impact of it, you know. Um, or, like, you know, because everybody does it. Everybody goes, oh, well, he was really productive. He had 15 touchdowns. He had whatever. But you didn't know exactly what that meant in the grand scheme of things, you know, right. uh, in terms of the galaxy or the universe of stuff. So. Now that you actually step back and actually see the universe and see how it works and you know all the little planets, he is a one of the know. he's one of the brightest stars in that universe. That's what I could exactly tell you. exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you know, so it gives like that. Le'Veon Bell's terrific, but he's not Marcus Allen yet. No, you know no, what I mean. No, <laughs> no, I don't think he'll ever. I don't think he'll beat Marcus Allen, um, but he'll still be very good. I mean, yeah, his potential would be. Uh, a really great player based on what he did at Michigan State up to this point. Um, other than the injuries and the, you know, stuff. But, um, stuff, right. Yes, right. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> if, he can get, if, if he can get over that and stay healthy, he definitely has a good shot of uh, making a big impact. But that's the thing, man, about the – and that's the other thing, too, about metrics, too, is it gives you – even as a young guy, it gives you perspective of just, uh, you know, how short – lifespans are how rare it really is to be a great player you know we're talking you know that's why the comparison stuff drives me nuts when people keep whipping out these hall of fame comparisons for so it's like look you can't do this every year you can't compare the best guy at a particular position every year to a hall of fame guy (laughs) that's just not practical it's It's not not really that i mean you're talking about almost every position, only 10% of every guy who comes out in every year on average is going to be a starter. And we're not talking great starters. We're just talking you know, a guy that just started for through four years and maybe he wasn't very good, you know, or wasn't very effective. And then finally left after four years or five years. So like you have that guy and then you get into like 5%, which is where you think of like pro bowlers and all pro guys, you know, uh, and then you get into the three, two percent area, and sometimes one percent at certain positions. 
where you're talking about Hall of Famers. So, you know, it just gives you perspective of, like, there's a reason why you need to you put a lot of effort into looking at every single thing because, you know, that's a very narrow amount of success. So it, it, it is helpful to at least figure out, okay, what made those guys uh, part of that amongst those, those groups. Because I get that a lot, too, where people say, well, you know, when it comes to data and it comes to all that kind of stuff, to be in the NFL means that you're an outlier. What they say, and I say, well, not necessarily, because it's kind of true, but you want to see what made them an outlier, right? Right. I mean, exactly. That's the whole point. There's stuff. That's the point of. If you're trying to find outliers, don't you learn how to? Don't you want to know how to do it? (laughs) Exactly. So, I I just don't like the sense of like to be well, you're outlier be that. Well, yeah, that's true, but like, like like I said, I just think it's kind of funny that people have that thought process with it, but. Um, I mean, I just look at it as, again, you know, it's like anything else. It's studying the game, but it's studying the game from from a perspective that most people don't or they think about, but they just don't actually put in the work to see what the stuff says because that's really all it is. man. It's, it's looking at a variable and testing that variable. And if the variable – and as I've told you before, which, you know, we have other shows that we've done where, you know, certain variables don't matter. Um and there's other variables that do. So it's just helpful to kind of figure out, okay, what matters, what doesn't matter. And as a result, you learn even more about the game of football in general when you do these types of things. Right. And like I said, that makes perfect sense. When when I start doing, and once again, I don't do anything close to what you do, Jim, but I've been trying to get a better idea of how quarterbacks from various eras compare. And I, like I said, you've probably done a lot of this work already. And, of course, I look at particularly three things, uh, yards per attempt, uh, completion percentage, and touch-to-interception ratio. And, of course, as you've said, many, we've said many times, I mean, there was a time when if you were a two-point, you know, if you were, you know, heck, I mean, two, if you were like 1.4 to 1 touch-to-interception ratio and you were, you know, 58% and uh, completion percentage and you were, you know, eight point something or nine. Well, actually, that's the one thing. I guess the yards per chip has actually come scooched down a little bit uh, from where it was in the 50s and 60s. So that's the one number where, you know, you you actually are a little less acceptable now maybe than you would have been in the past in terms of, you know, more balls come out quickly and go a shorter distance. But, I mean, these guys were – exceptional, great, amazing. You know, if you were a 58% guy, 1.4 to 1 touch-to-interception ratio. Now there's guys who are, you know, 4 to 1, 5 to 1, 6 to 1, and, uh, you know, 70-something percent coming out of college, uh, completion percentage guys. It is easier to throw the football now than ever, 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 ever before. Both Clouds and pro. And when I see... But... Yes, go ahead. But the same correlations exist in terms of efficiency. You know, it's just that the right. numbers are higher. Um, right, the ratios the thing. still matter. You just have to recalibrate. Yeah. Exactly. So, which is why I went that far back anyways. I mean, the thing is, like I said, Bill, um, as far as comparing guys in different areas and stuff like that, I already did all the NFL. Um, the entire NFL, 
So in terms of passing percentages, averages, uh, that sort of stuff, like everybody from like autogram to so, well, let's, well, let's let's do that then. Geometrics all time. Um, so 1940 to 1950. I'm gonna guess Sammy Baugh, but who was it? Who was who? Who won at the quarterback position? Oh, metric. Nineteen forty to nineteen fifty. Yeah, uh, that actually that was Otto Graham. Oh, okay, <laughs> that was Otto Graham. Okay, well, Otto Graham wasn't in the NFL yet. I mean, he was in the what was it oh. the uh, the AAFA or whatever in, um, until what is it fifty six fifty. Um, I'm trying to remember how long it took. Fifty five, maybe it's fifty five was the year that they joined the NFL. You're, um, Pete would know. Pete, what year did the Browns come over into the NFL? Was it 55? Yes. Pete, hey, hey, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. And immediately took I mean, the leave. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they were, they were, people used to wonder, you know, just how they would hold up. They held up just fine. <laughs> they were just fine. Um, but, I mean, I guess you could still count him if you want. I mean, I'm not surprised to hear that. He was a amazing quarterback, uh, sort of the Drew Brees of his era. I mean, during that era, at least from uh, 1946 to uh, 1956, the guys that were really, really good were Y.A. Tittle, Otto Graham, and uh, Bobby Lane, although Bobby Lane was significantly yep. less um, – Right. Well, he was he was a gunslinger, as they say. Yeah, he was, like <laughs> he was the third. He was like the third guy. And the end of the fifties, you started getting Norm Van Brocklin, who had some really good seasons, mixed oh, in with some yeah. eh, seasons. You know, I mean, he not high variance. You know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but that was kind of what, at least during that again, from nineteen forty six to nineteen fifty five. You know, it was pretty much White Hill and. Uh, Bobby Lane, Norman Brocklin, Autogram. And Autogram was Got the it. best out of them, at least during that era. Okay, so let's go to the next era, the Johnny Unitas era. I'm assuming it's Johnny Unitas. The Johnny Unitas era, that next group. I mean, am I right? That it was, because I mean, Unitas seemed to me like he, think of outliers. It's like with Babe Ruth in baseball, like his numbers don't look right compared to everybody else's of the era. Yeah, Johnny Unitas was, but surprisingly, Guys that actually were sticking out a decent amount was like Eddie LeBaron, Eddie uh, LeBaron, the little general. Milt, yeah, Milt, Milt Plum. Plum. Yeah, Plum. Yeah, from uh, Cleveland. He uh, was he was a game manager, but a really good game manager. Yeah, and and Plum Plum actually had one of the best statistical seasons um, ever at uh, at the NFL level. So uh, in nineteen fifty. Not 19, I think it was 1960. Yeah, 1960. He had one of the best statistical seasons ever as a quarterback. But, uh, yeah, that era was pretty much Johnny Unitas, Milt Plum, and then uh, LeBaron in terms of uh, – I think people will be surprised to hear Milt Plum be the second name out of your mouth. But he was always regarded as, a, you know, kind of a jag, like a really good jag, you know, like a – but I don't think people thought of him as – there are other names I think people would have assumed would have come – Ahead of Plum, but put it that way. I'm, I mean, based on his passing, I mean, based on his passing efficiency, touchdown interception ratio, uh, right? You know, quarterback rating, all that stuff. Uh, if for his era, he was that guy. So um, people may not think of him that way, 
They but did not. He was. <laughs> they just, I he mean, in his era, they didn't think of him that way, and definitely now they don't think of him that way. You don't hear – I mean, there's a few people in, like, the – was it the Professional Football Research Association who sometimes raise him as a guy who should get consideration from the seniors uh, committee. Like, literally, like, one or two guys. But <laughs> when I say a couple, I mean literally, like, two. But he's not a name that you hear a lot. That's me, but I, I agree. I mean, not a, a bit. I always heard my dad. Obviously, I didn't see him play. My dad saw him play quite a bit, and he said he was always underrated. Okay, so that brings us, of course, to the next era when there's obviously more, few more footballs in the air. Uh, you got the AFL being active at this time. Um, obviously, there's some the quarterback position has become, you know, closer to how we think of it now. Who are the guys from that era, the guys at the top of your your rankings, your listing? Well, Bart Starr was, <laughs> in terms of the 60s, you know, um, dominant in terms of every. That's another, another name that I think people will be surprised that they, that they hear. I mean, people know he's one of the Hall best seasons I mean, yeah. Bart so Starr was on par with, with, like, the Packer, you know, like like Aaron Rodgers and everybody else. Like, And he had kind of a better career. Uh, at least it, he had a better career than Brett Favre, at least in terms of uh, how many quality seasons he put up. So, <laughs> yeah. he was kind of like that. That would shock people. <laughs> that would absolutely shock people. Okay, excellent. Um, who do you have, like, right behind him or, or close to him? Um, the guys that were close to him during that era were guys like uh, uh, Sonny Jurgensen. Yes, uh, the old redhead. You know, yeah, Don Meredith. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Johnny Nice, too, um, was still kind of nipping at his heels a little bit. Um, Tarkenton was there, too, but Tarkenton didn't really get really efficient until later, into like the 70s. Yeah, the 70s. Okay, and let's move on to the 70s. So the NFL's still not a passing league yet, but it's getting closer. You know, it's more, these teams are getting closer to 50-50, and the quarterback position is now the, the position. You now hear people talking about quarterbacking a meeting and things like that. It is now part of the American lexicon, and it's considered, you know, the position. Because running back was the position, you know, in the 1950s. And even into the 60s. I mean, United helped to change that in the 60s. So who are the guys? Uh, top two or three guys, maybe, in that era. Well, Roger Staubach. Right, for, uh, obviously. obvious reasons. Um, Fran Tarkington. You know, right. he caught on really well during that era. Uh, I think you could, you can kind of add Ken Stabler, but Ken Stabler had like a brief, you know, <laughs> he had a short but impressive short. peak in the night, it was and then short, a very significant drop off. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, he was there. Uh, Ken Anderson at Cincinnati, also, I would put with that group. In fact, I would say in terms of the '70s in general, it'd be Ken, you know, not a. It would be Roger Staubach, Ken Anderson, Ken Stabler. <clears throat> And then Fran Tarkenton, you know, kind of in that area of uh, of players in terms of that. 
And there were a couple guys who had one really good season, then kind of like Burt Jones in 1976 yeah. had a really good I remember that year. Season. Hitting <laughs> Roger Carr on White Lightning on all those uh, bang eights. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Bob Greasy, I mean, I'm not going to say his career was bad. It definitely was Hall of Fame level, but it wasn't as impressive as guys like Ken Anderson and um, and Ken Stabler and stuff like that. He had some highs, but not a lot of – of course, he has the championships too. So, But, um, but right. in terms right. of like his actual passing efficiency – And that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. I mean, if he hadn't yeah. been a two-time Super Bowl guy, there's no way you – know? Because even within his era, people thought of him as, once again, kind of a, you know, game manager, which he was, but he's a really good one. Okay. And then in the 80s, I'm going to assume it's Montana and then sort of everybody else. <laughs> but, well, the uh, 80s but, is uh, actually pretty simple. Uh, the 80s is Joe Montana, obviously, for obvious reasons. Uh, then, of course, Dan Marino. Right. Dan Fouts. And it's kind of a mishmash of Ken Anderson. Joe Theismann had some really good years to start the era. Right. You know, in terms of the early 80s. Until he, well, his you know, career was cut short, stuff. as you sure you know. <laughs> but nobody compares to Joe Montana, especially that no. 1989 season where yeah. it's even with the fact that there were less players playing in that era in terms of quarterback. Um, in terms of, uh, like, there's just a lot more turnaround, I guess, for whatever reason, now than then. Even with that, Joe Montana still had the best statistical season ever in 1989. Yeah, oh, I remember. <laughs> yeah. I remember all too well. Being a yeah, fan Gabriel of Washington was also, and Steelers. Yeah, Gabriel also was just interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Gabriel also was interesting because, like, he had a very – like, he came in and was instantly great, obviously. Yep. But then he started to get a little wonky, you know, towards, you know, of course, in the 90s. That's because he had he never, nothing. Okay. <laughs> he had nothing. But I just say, you know, like, People, people was, make excuses for, you know, Tom Brady, Wood, blah, blah, blah. Dude, go back and look at the dudes that Marino threw to in his career. Okay, Duper and Clayton, the March Brothers, cute name, and they were decent Smallish receivers. They were not great. They weren't great, but they had they had the cool nickname. They were the best player I think the Dolphins ever had with Dan Marino is probably Richmond Webb. And then, believe it or not, Pharrell Edmonds was a Pro Bowler once, which I I was doing research on on who he threw to in his career. I think he had one year with Irving Fryer when Irving Fryer was being passed around the league. Yes, uh, we had O.J. McDuffie and all those guys. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, Irving Fryer is the guy who yeah. at least had you know, been in the Pro Bowl. But once you get beyond that, it's a bunch of just guys. <laughs> it really is. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he had a lot of work. Like, oh, I remember him. Like, you <laughs> – yeah, but you also had a lot of workmanlike guys who like had peaks. Yes. Uh Bernie yes. Kozar, you know, nineteen eighty seven, you know, was one of the one of the better quarterbacks. He was fun ever. to watch though. He was a fun quarterback to yeah. watch. He was one of my favorite quarterbacks to watch. 
it's like a bunch of guys, and some of these guys are Hall of Famers, of course, you know, Boomer Size and all those other guys. Had Well, Size is not the Hall, though some oh. people, you know, do argue yeah. for him. <laughs> but but he's sure. had a couple of really good years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying it in terms of perspective of, like, you know, there was a lot of quarterbacks that were kind of like that in the 80s, but, like, consistently dominant guys. This is pretty much Joe Montana, Dan Marino. Yeah. Um, right. And then there was a bunch of guys who had some peaks and then also had some valleys uh, and stuff like that, at least in terms of that era of the 80s. Right. And then in the 90s, I'm going to guess that there's probably a little bit of Montana left, uh, though obviously dropped off. Steve Young obviously had ridiculous numbers in the night. His numbers would look fine nowadays, you know, like it's, it, that's how some of, the, some of the years he had, you would think they were taking place now. It, he he was uh, amazing at his peak. Uh, I'm guessing that Aikman's probably in there. Um, I'm probably some guy I'm not thinking of. Um, somebody I'm forgetting about. I'm wondering if, I don't know if Elway, Maybe a little bit of L.A.? I don't know. Well, I guess I'll let you tell me. Hmm. Well, at least at the beginning of the of the era, it was Jim Kelly, you know, oh, the Buffalo Bills. Right. Thank at you. the, at the beginning. I'm hearing somebody. Thank you, Jim Kelly. If you're talking about the most dominant player during the 90s, it was easily Steve Young, statistically speaking. Right. Right. I figured Steve Young was up way up here. Troy Aikman, obviously, is there as well in the early 90s. Um, John Elway. John Elway also decided to show up a bit, uh, a little you know, <laughs> here and there. You know, in terms of, in fact, his best years were in the '90s, in terms of yep. his career. So, I mean, that that just kind of shows you, you know, about stuff. But yeah, it's pretty. But Steve Young was easily the guy. Uh, of course, Brett Favre had. The only thing I'll say about Brett Favre is again. That 90s Brett Favre is a lot different than that 2000 Brett Favre. Let's say that one. Yeah. So, um, well, he was a wild was... stallion in the 90s, Jeff. I mean, once again, if you like high variance, whew, the highest of the high, the variant disc of the variants. I mean, the things he would do, he he really was the, the, the perfect example of the wow what quarterback. He literally would make one of the greatest plays you've ever seen from any quarterback in your life, and then literally three plays later, he would throw the interception you cannot throw, like the one that no one would throw. You know, like think of the worst right. quarterback you've seen. That worse than that. Exactly. And the only thing I would say is, man, number six was so freaking lucky. But only because, like, you know, you had Joe Montana who had a longer career and had one of the best seasons ever. But then you go from Joe Montana to Steve Young, who just kind of picks up the mantle and just rolls with it. Almost, I mean, Steve Young's career is almost very similar to, like, Aaron Rodgers in terms of a guy who showed up a little late, you know, older, I guess, if you will, and then just but being dominant, you know, um, in terms of what he did. But it was pretty much Steve Young during the 90s. Um, and like I, like I said, it was Brett Favre, Steve Young, and some some in and outs with guys like Mark Brunel and, you know, um, Troy Aikman and stuff like that. But Troy Aikman's best years were earlier versus the end. Right. You know, but, uh, yeah, and you also had some savvy veteran guys. Like right. Randall well, Cunningham. that's where his brain turned to bully a base. So, yes, I would, I would imagine. Right, right, right. And then the end of the year, end of the season, 
or in the era, you had Kurt Warner in 1999, who was another guy that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and had one of the best physical yeah. seasons ever yeah. as a quarterback. In the history of the world, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, it's amazing a guy goes from being, you know, a guy that literally anybody could have had for, you know, a 20 something thousand dollars signing bonus to kind of Joe Montana. Um, I mean, when I think of the quarterbacks he was most like in the guys I watched, he was, I've never compared anybody to Joe Montana, but the closest at his peak that I saw to Joe Montana at his peak was Warner. The ridiculous sense of anticipation, the utter calm in the sense of everything going on, going completely wrong sometimes, and making it right even though it shouldn't have been possible to pull off. I mean, he was that guy, despite his whatever, you know, the story is cool and everything too, but even when you get away from the, wow, what an amazing story part of it, just look at his career, look at the what stuff he did and how he did it, and he was an amazing player beyond the story. I mean, if you just look at the player, there was some amazing stuff he pulled off. And yeah, he was a from. I don't know if I've seen a better in terms of touch. Devine who was good. I don't know if I've seen anyone better. He could his ball was when a guy if you dropped one of Kurt Warner's balls, you really dropped it. You know what I mean? Like he. His ball was imminently catchable. If you dropped one, you really dropped it. Like, you did something wrong. So, I guess we only have one last era to go. That's, I guess, from the end of the year 2000 until... Whenever you, you well, know, whenever you, I did in 2016, but yeah, whenever you stopped measuring or looking, who who are the, the last group? Well, the 2000s is is Peyton Manning, <laughs> right. Tom Brady. Of course, um, there was a couple old horses in there. You know, Rich Gannon had some pretty decent physical seasons to begin the year, but then of course they have kind of faded out a bit. Um, Chad Pennington also had one of the best fiscal seasons ever. Tremendously underrated quarterback, yes. And then, of course, just kind of fell into obscurity. Especially went to the Dolphins and had a magical season. Well, also. Mostly because of a series of what would have been career-ending injuries. Um, yeah, I'm he just kept saying, fighting like, back from the folly he, he couldn't had, get anymore. He had some crazy things, but yeah, so but yeah, the nine, the two thousands, it was pretty. I mean, Culpepper had some things here and there, and of course that faded away. But if you're just talking like consistency, you know, guys that just consistently put up numbers year in year out and ended up finishing in the top five to top position ever. You know, at the position, it's Peyton Manning and Tom Brady, and career wise, the Joe Montana has it, but if Peyton Manning didn't have the because Peyton Manning is a funny guy because his his worst seasons were his first year and his last right. year. Um, exactly. <laughs> so Bell curve. Yeah. And his last right. year was probably one of the one of the worst seasons he's ever had, ever. actually. Um ever. Right. So like if he had retired before that, he might have actually fared a little bit better compared to Joe Montana's career. But he didn't. Uh, he's still very good. It's just that, you know, that 
those two seasons kind of bogged down yeah. a little bit of his overall <laughs> career. But, but yeah, it was pretty much Peyton Manning. And there's been other guys in here, you know, Ben Roethlisberger has had some pretty high performances. Drew Brees had his little era going on, too. Um, but, yeah, the 2000s is actually a really good era for quarterbacks. Oh, Philip Rivers, yeah. too. With the golden age. I mean, people laugh when I say it, but, I mean, I've watched enough football to say this is the golden age. Now, things have helped it to be the golden age, but it is the golden age. If you're a 20-year-old, you have in your football fandom history watched Brett Favre, right? Uh, you probably you may have caught the tail end of no, – I guess you probably missed the tail end of guys like Jim Kelly and that bunch. But, but you – and, well, you may have caught some – maybe as a little kid, you might have caught some Marino, Kelly, that bunch. But even if you missed those guys, you still did see peak era Brady Manning, Favre. You've watched a bunch of guys – Philip Rivers and Breeze, um, probably each of whom Kurt, Kurt are – Warner. Kurt Warner. Eli Manning isn't amazing to me, but he's – going to breeze into the Hall of Fame, whether he should or not, is a whole other debate. I know, we'll have that debate soon, I promise you. (laughs) I really don't want Eli Manning getting in there. I know, Sean Sean DePasquale and I had a whole rondelet about first ballot Hall of Fame for Eli. Like, look, I have seen him getting... Yeah, I know. I know. And as big big as those fans I am, Kenny Anderson, much more deserving than than Bradshaw, but whatever. So, we had this whole rondelet about... (laughs) about Eli. I get it. You know, he he got really hot in two postseasons, played out of his mind. There's no – I never I never debated that. It's like, yes, he played out of his mind. But I also saw him be flat out bad, not, not below average, bad, for two or three whole seasons pretty much. And not just at the beginning of his career. I mean, even after that. Look at even some of the seasons after the first Super Bowl. It's like, hmm, that's not that great. I mean, you know, so he'll get in. And, you know, I won't go crazy if he gets in first ballot, though it'll bother me. Um, because people used to say Troy Aikman was overrated. And uh, come on now. He actually had I mean, great seasons. I mean, that's what I'm pointing out, yes. He's had, right. I mean, Eli's definitely had seasons where he threw for a lot of yards, but he wasn't the most efficient quarterback. Um, no. I mean, the Quite one the thing I can say about this era is that normally, like, in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s, et cetera, you would have maybe two quarterbacks that were in the 90 percentile of performances compared to every era, you know, in terms of averaging out the, the, the statistics and then comparing it from there, in the 2000s, and especially now, you have like four or five guys that are in the 90 percentile, which is what makes it really difficult to, I guess, figure out who really deserves to get in. Because, you know, there's going to be lots of guys where, based on the competition they had and based on how good they were compared to their peers, you know, guys like Tony Romo and Philip Rivers and Ben Roethlisberger um, and, you know, those type of guys. I don't see how, because those guys played when they played, I don't see how you put Eli Manning over them because, you know, right. those guys have had clearly better careers than Eli Manning other than the fact that he won those Super Bowls. So, 
Um, he rides more like John issue. Brody, you know, than he is like he's more his like brother Brody or Brody. Montana. You know, in terms of, I mean, Eli Manning has not had a season that, you know, like he's never had, never had one season. The one thing I could say about all the Hall of Famers that got in is they had at least one season where they were a top two or a top three quarterback, statistically speaking. Eli Manning has never achieved that. Never. Never yeah. done it once, exactly. So it I could, just don't you know, see how still you happen. Got, like still got some good years left, but I mean, Eli Manning. I and know. the other thing too is this time right now. I mean, I'm just telling you, Bill. Like 2013, Eli Manning, he was 11 out of 100 <laughs> in terms of his yeah. passing efficiency score. You know, like he's been flat out bad. You know, yep. I remember. Right now, so I just don't see, and it's not even like a Ken Anderson thing, and not Ken Anderson, but Ken Stabler thing. Where again, Ken Stabler definitely, you know, had some peaks and stuff, but he had peaks. You know, you at least had that to point to. With Eli Manning, you don't have peaks. You just have, I mean, Eli Manning's career is more in common with like Joe Flacco's career than you know, just kind of an average starter. You know, that just happened to be on a Super Bowl team. So, I'm, I'm just saying, I just hope he doesn't. I mean, okay, I'm not going to hope somebody doesn't get success or whatever. I'm just saying, like, I just don't <laughs> see how Eli Manning should be in there considering his career, what he's done, the peaks he's had, and all the other kind of stuff. So, that's just yeah, my name. I hear, I hear all that. But you and I both know he's getting in. The only question is if he's going to be for a ballot or not. And well, I'm going to go down and I'm going to have my sign and I'm going to be at Canton and I'm going to protest it. You know, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to stop this because it, it should not happen. <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying. I really, really do. And I've had this debate with lots of people, uh, many of them Giants fans, some of them non-Giants fans. There's some people who you know, aren't even Giants fans who think, you know, Eli's very deserving and blah, blah, blah. And I, I tell them I can name literally 20 quarterbacks from different eras and some, several from this era who are more deserving. And, you know, they don't, either don't want to hear it or, uh, you know, don't care, whichever. So I just have to, you know, live, live through it. Follow, you know, woosah. So, gentlemen, as always, it is an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. Uh, we will do this again very, very soon. So, Pete, I do hope this won't be the last time. Uh, well, I hope at least sometime before the actual draft you'll be able to rejoin us. And, uh, Jim, as always, you are, at least at what you do, you're the best I know out there. And I talk to a lot of people. <laughs> um, I just don't know anybody who does it at the level that you do it, uh, as exhaustively as you do it, as thoroughly as you do it. So I'm glad that you're on my team. So I thank both of you for your time. I thank you both for your talent. I thank you both for your attention. And as I said, we will do this thing again in, well, not one week. It'll be like six days. And by that time, some bowl games will have, or at least will be happening, which is amazing to me. And then we'll have that go on for uh, almost a month. And then it'll be all-star games, and then it'll be combines, and then it'll be... The end is near. Uh, right, exactly. And then it'll be the silly season when it's, the rumors and the such and such is and who's rocketing up and who's plummeting and 
Yeah, we heard someone so yeah. bomb the interview and yeah, Mitch Light tore it up at his pro day. And now he's gonna <laughs> become a second rounder. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Lord save us from Miss Leidner and his ilk. Oh, good news, Pete. Washington just forced a strict strip sack fumble, and they will preserve a victory. You have no idea how many things have gone right today for the sake of useless draft position. <laughs> the Bengals, the Bengals, because of that tie just jump behind the Eagles. The Cardinals are in a uh, tie with the Dolphins. If they win, they jump behind the Eagles. I think the Browns and the 49ers are currently winning, so the Browns don't have to be afraid to win if that holds out. Uh, I think the Browns, if everything holds the way it should, the Browns would be picking first and seventh. You know, so congratulations-ish. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's Hey, the good news is that this is a draft that has some top, some top end talent, deserving top end talent at the top end. So, so that's potentially good news. And if you do get Garrett, that will be fun to watch. Feel like oh, that yeah. going for you. Well, uh, Ogba had two sacks today. Had a big pre- another big pressure. Uh, and Danny Shelton's a stud. I mean, they've got – it would be uh, the first potential unicorn pad that would just be very strong, and I don't know how long. And, and, you know, the talk about, well, the Browns haven't had a quarterback since Bernie Kozler. If you go back, if you look at the last, like, guy that season in, season out, was like a, a terrifying pass rusher, um, you have to go back to Michael Dean Perry, Anthony Pleasant, and Robert Nett. Yeah, so it's been a little while. Is what so, you're driving at there? It'd be nice. Well, good. Well, like I said, I wish you the best on that. But if Indeedy ends up there, I will. I'll be watching. I'm uh, very much intrigued by what the future will hold for him. And as you said, I think he's going to have one of those combines that will remove all doubt, as they say. So that that'll be fun to watch as well. Uh, I look forward to seeing what you and Jim come up with next. And once again, I thank you both. Gentlemen, have a great rest of this weekend. Sounds good. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.